Welcome to Occasionally Awesome. I am Nick Youssef. I'm Kevin Christie. I said it differently again that time. Yeah. I said it more like... Somebody's working on his voiceover reel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hardly. Okay. Um, Special news. Sort of. (laughs) Pretty special. Um, It's it's fun and exciting news. You're drinking Bundaberg. Yeah, I got it at the market. Jumped on board. Fuck yeah. Got it at the market. It's delicious. Yeah, it's so good, right? Yep, spicy. Yeah, it's my favorite ginger beer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've been talking a, a, in little bits on this podcast about how I'm going to make a pin. Yeah. I fucking made it. They came up pretty good, dude. Yeah, they're cool, right? Making a pin. <laughs> if you have the desire to make a pin, I would recommend doing it because yeah. the thing about them is they look they kind of look exactly how you hope they look. It's not one of things you're like, yeah, it looks like that. It's like, fuck. Yeah, it was crazy. It, it looks they're shiny, yeah. so crisp. It looked exactly like the drawing. Fuck. Um, if you're if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, go to my Instagram page. It's like uh, four pictures old, um, and it's a picture of my face, my head popping out of coming out of a coffee cup, and then on the cup it says my name. Um, it's also on my Twitter. It's the pinned tweet, so it'll be the one on the top. Um, of the page and it's on my website obviously that's where you go purchase the pin uh com forward slash forward slash merch uh there's a few pictures of it uh in various states on a table like sitting on the back of it <laughs> um and then pinned to like a denim jacket which is where you'd hopefully put it if you buy it it's six bucks um i hope that you guys purchase them i think they're super cool i don't know any other comic that has Pin a pin as merch. Nope. I don't think I've ever heard of that. Not an enamel pin. I haven't seen enamel pins. Yeah. Um, and it's fucking awesome. Like, go check it out. Yeah, dude, um, it looks cool. Such a satisfying purchase. Yeah, yeah. I'm, re- I'm very excited to uh, to buy them. So some people have already ordered them, and then I'm going to send those orders out this week. And then I'll probably send the orders out weekly because it's, you know, it's not, they're not going to be coming in by the hundreds, but... Uh, there also, by the way, is a limited quant- quantity. I'm not. I didn't make like a fucking thousand of these things. So there are not too many. So please buy one. There's six dollars. Um, it would be really cool. And if you do get one uh, and it shows up, you know, put it on and take a picture, and I'll retweet it or, or regram it or something on Instagram. Uh, again, that's nickyusef.com forward slash merch. Um, my brand new pin available for sale right now. Uh, some road stuff. You have anything coming up? No. Oh, oh. December twenty eighth and 29th Punchline with Dean Delray. Oh, okay. That's pretty far off though. That's in almost just under two months. Right. That's not that bad though. Okay. Um. But if you were like uh, next June, <laughs> I'd be like, all right, that's a little. No one knows what they're doing. Um. I uh. July, not July. Uh, what the fuck month is it? November. November 18th through the 21st. 19th through the 22nd, sorry. Uh, Irvine Improv with Steve Byrne. Uh, and then December 2nd, uh, The Greatest Show in Los Angeles, The Meltdown. I'll be on that again. November 18th, sorry, the next workshop show. That's the new material night I host and run and book and blah, blah, blah. At the Comedy Store, 8 p.m. in the Belly Room lineup to be announced. Uh, come to that. Those are always fun. Awesome comics doing brand new shit. So it's a cool thing to see. 
and December, San Francisco, December 16th through 19th. I'm recording my next album. Uh, that'll be on the 18th and 19th, but I'm playing the punchline the 16th through the 19th. So if you're in San Francisco, come out to that. Come to the, the album recording dates, the 18th and 19th. If you can't come, just come see the shows or the 16th and 17th, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, but please be there if you can. Bring your friends. Let's get like a great crowd in there and uh, make it sound super awesome. Um, and then the 23rd through the 27th of December, I'm in Lake Tahoe playing the improv again. It'll be snowy as shit, and I'm looking yep. forward to just chilling out for like four days. Coco. Uh, so if you're up there on like a family Christmas vacation and you're bored at night, uh, or you want to bring your family, I'll be at the improv slinging jokes. <laughs> Um, and then that does it. And then there's more stuff in January, but that's a ways away. Um, but teaser, if you live in North Carolina, I'm coming your way. Um, I always wanted to go to North Carolina. Dude, it's such a cool state. I've been to Raleigh, Charlotte, and then I will be in Wilmington. So if that's near you guys. I think Charlotte's one of the considered one of the nicest places to live in the country. It's, it's becoming that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was think, there last year. maybe Raleigh. I don't know. Raleigh's like a college town. Okay. But Charlotte just broke a million in population, mm. and they're like a lot of like banking is there now, so a lot of like New Yorkers are moving there. Oh, okay. Like, it's a very like nice, clean city. Feels yeah. like the South. It's like it's North cool. North Carolina seems cool to me. It's a really cool state. I love it there. Anyway, uh, that I think about does it for right now. I know I'm forgetting something, but I'll remember it later in the car. So <laughs> when it's too late, this episode is very exciting. Uh, Cliff Nesteroff. Yep. He is uh, an author. Yeah. He wrote a fucking awesome book called The Comedians. It is, uh, there's an actual long title. Hold on a second. Uh, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of Comedy. And this thing American is comedy. deep. Yeah. He gets into a 100-year history of comedy from like yeah. early vaudeville to fucking podcast it literally ends with talking about like Marin's podcast yeah a couple of this episodes. is one of our longest episodes because dude knows a ton yeah i mean i i didn't know most of what he said like the right. guy is a wealth yeah like he, it's, it's like it's uh, crazy he's like very interested in uh old hollywood too so he's been yeah. writing about that yeah uh for a little while and he wrote for this uh i can't remember the name of it i'm doing doing a really bad job in this intro right now blanking i'm just so tired i've been up fucking all day and i'm like at that point where i'm like i could fall asleep sitting upright in a chair right and so what i need is a lot of fucking coffee wfmu god damn it that's what i was thinking uh so it's like this like old showbiz blog where he's like written all these like articles on like old comedy and like actors and, and things like that it's very interesting so he's been writing about that kind of stuff for a while so uh and then he wrote a book you can follow him on twitter at classic showbiz uh c-l-a-s-s-i-c showbiz h-s-h-o-w-b-i-z um and uh and you can buy his book on amazon obviously and again the book is called comedian there's like other books called comedian so you have to like type in the whole thing or it won't show up right. so you type in The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. 
That's available right now. Today it came out today. So buy it. I read it. It's great. I really liked it. It was I burned fucking through it. Because you get to learn about kind of the just the way old entertainment worked. And it's I mean, it's obviously centered on on comedy, but there's a lot of cool stuff about vaudeville and like how long and widespread that was and how many yeah. vaudeville theaters there were and like what these like old school pre stand up comedians had to do to like get by and perform. Yeah. And you read these stories and you're like, I, I should never ever complain about comedy ever. Yeah. Like the things they had to do. <laughs> yeah, it was and very hard. The places they had to travel to and like yeah. the shit they got paid, the crowds they had to perform to. It was a fucking nightmare. The dedication yeah. these guys yeah. would put in just to fucking be entertainers was it was insane. And then it gets into like, you know, uh, early stand up like right before there were even comedy clubs and what those comedians yeah. and all these guys you never heard of and then there's some stuff about the late night shows and then like the comedy boom in the 70s and Carlin and this and that and then the 90s and the 2000s it's a fucking great great read if you're if you are a comic read this book if you're like just starting to it gives you a different perspective on what you think it means to like be a comedian and work like yeah. a comedian you see all these like legends and like it kind of gets into like how they started and the things they had to do and like because you're a lot of people being like kind of diva-ish about like well i'm a comedian so i'm not going to do this and do that and then you look at how prior and carlin and those guys started the jobs they had to take and like even within entertainment you're like you just have to work and get good and just figure it out yeah it's a long it's a long journey yeah you just have to start um but a fantastic read Cliff we talked to him about his early years because he started as a stand up he did it for like seven or eight years in Canada so we talked to him about that and then like what's it like to write a book and then the research that went into this and uh, the things he's learned and stuff yeah Uh, super nice guy very very well informed yeah and passionate which I think is why the book is good totally yeah yeah I mean to sit there and write a hundred year history of comedy yeah and right now you're thinking this is like a thousand page book because it's on a hundred. It's not like it's a, probably maybe around four or something like that. Um, so don't get intimidated by like, oh man, a hundred years streak. I'm never. This is gonna be <laughs> the longest book ever written. Uh, it's not, and it goes by fast. So I highly recommend it. You guys get it and enjoy this episode, and uh, let us know what you think. Obviously, you can find me for any questions or comments or anything. Contact at nickyusef.com. So if you want to know more about that pin that you can buy at nickyusef.com forward slash merch <laughs> or, um, or anything else, any stand updates or uh, that, that weekend at the punchline, contact at nickyusef.com. I answer everything. So hit me up. Let's talk. Uh, but don't be crazy and weird. <laughs> uh, that probably goes without saying. A lot of people hit me up on Snapchat just to say I'm, I'm a fan, oh, which cool. I think is funny. I think that's why I'm afraid of Snapchat is the, yeah. for people being mean to me. They'll just like take a picture of a random thing and be like, love the podcast, love your comedy or whatever. Yeah. And you just, ah, thanks. And they're just like these total strangers that live in wherever. But yeah. it's like, cool. Um, so that's always fun. It's fun to hear from you guys. So um, I think that does it. I think we can let you guys now listen to this really, really cool episode. Enjoy it. And order this book again. Yes, please. Order the book. Um And that's it. See you guys next week.
Okay, so there's a lot to cover, <laughs> I think, from what I've read about you and what I've read that you've written. Um, you used to be a stand-up comic. I was, yeah. Yeah. Was when did that happen? 98 until 2006. But so, I, okay. I was in Canada, and so I mostly did Toronto and Vancouver, and occasionally would do Seattle and New York, but I could never legally work in America when I was a stand-up. Now I can legally work here as a writer. So it limited where I could perform. Toronto and Vancouver, and I did it for eight years, but Vancouver's a small market. There's only so far you can go. So even though I did well in stand-up, eight years in, I was still performing in the same venues I was performing in in year one to the same size audience for the Uh most part, which is a little bit soul-crushing because you're like, my act is good, I'm doing well, yet I'm only listening to the sound of nine people laughing. Right. Why am I still doing this? Because it's not fulfilling or gratifying. So you needed work permits to do stand-up here? Is that how... Oh, yeah. That's how it still works. Even if it's like you're doing gigs for free, let's say? No, not if you're doing them for free. If you're getting paid, you have to have work papers, even if you're just being paid 50 bucks. Wow. But if you said you were going down to do shows for free, they would not let you in because that sounds like a lie. Because performing is performing. In case, unless you have like papers that say from like you've been invited by a university to speak like a for festival free. Yeah. or something. Yeah. But if you said, oh, I'm going down to the comedy underground in Tacoma, but I'm not being paid and I'm performing, they would flag you and they would send you back. Can you go just as like, could you, could you say you're like, oh, I'm going for a trip? Yeah, I'm going to visit that's, friends. That's what everybody does. Right. That's what everybody says. But the, 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 the problem is, as a Canadian, if you're ambitious, and God forbid they caught you in that lie, you could be banned from the United States for life. Right. This happened to friends of mine, even a friend of mine who was married to an American girl who was doing comedy in New York. And to subsidize it, he did have to get like a shit job, just like as a busboy. And somehow, he doesn't know how, they found out, and he's banned from the United States for the rest of his life. So all of his comedy ambitions... In America, we're squelched. What the uh, fuck? Can you get unbanned, or is that like once it happens, like it's it kind depends. of a wrap? Like sometimes they'll just put a year ban, a five year ban, a lifetime ban. It's totally arbitrary, and you're dealing with police officers essentially, border yeah. guards, and the Department of Homeland Security. So when I started making money as a writer in Canada, I knew that eventually I would move here, but I would only do so completely above board. I had too right. much at stake. If yeah. that should ever happen to me, I would have been so crushed so it took me years to get down here legally but now i'm here because i remember kyle canane wow. had a problem where they wouldn't let him into canada because of a thing he had like a charge here and they wouldn't let him in for a while and then now he can go but like he tried to go to a couple festivals and, and they'd get like, to the border sorry. and they were like sorry i've heard that duis won't get you into canada yeah which is crazy yeah yeah i really don't know and it's really so uh, arbitrary it's the same way as if you got stopped by a cop you know he could do anything he wants to you. And if you did something illegal, he could also say, I'm just giving you a warning and letting you Yeah, go. I think a yeah. lot of people are like, just go to the border and try. Maybe they'll look, you know, because every once in a while you just get waved through and they barely say anything. When I was moving here legally, the day I was moving here legally, I gave them my work visa at the, at the Vancouver airport and the guy stamped it. And I thought, oh, great, I'm in. He goes, okay, Mr. Nesteroff, just... Uh, go through that door over there in that room and, and wait. And I was like, oh, that's a weird request. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was going to be have a nice day, enjoy your yeah. stay. I go into this room and it's just a room full of people being deported. Oh, shit. Like speaking uh, Puerto Rican, you know? And so I'm sitting there and I'm waiting and they finally call my name 
and uh, there's this cop behind the desk, and he's staring at the computer, and I'm at the desk, and he goes, Mr. Nestroff, he doesn't look me in the eye. He's staring at the computer screen. He goes, Mr. Nestroff, have you ever been arrested for a crime? And uh, I immediately become so nervous. I was like, there's only one answer to this question, whether it's the truth or false. There's only one answer. Yeah, yeah. If you say yes... That's the wrong answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you say no, that's the right answer. It doesn't matter if you spent 10 years in jail. I mean, if he's looking, I don't know what he's looking at on the computer. That's the thing that's making me That's the me problem so these days is like they probably have so much more access to that information than 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, so I don't know what he's looking at on the computer. For all I know, he probably was just looking at his Facebook. Right. I, I, I don't know. So I said no. And I was shaking, my hands were shaking, so I put them on the counter to like stabilize them, but then right. I feel the, that I was shaking the counter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, so I, he goes, Have you ever been arrested for a crime? And I said, No. And he nods and goes, Okay, have a seat. And then like five minutes later, they gave me back the, the work visa, and, and he goes, Okay, I got to walk you out the, this door here to, your, to where you board your plane. Huh. So I don't think he was looking at anything. So it's just a random, every yeah, tenth they're guy. They're trying to catch you in something. Now, I don't really want to broadcast this, but I had been arrested at some point. When I was 19, I was yeah. arrested, you know, and it was a false arrest. It's a long story. I walked into a sting operation. The charges were dropped. <laughs> they got the wrong guy. It's yeah. a crazy story. But a lot of times that stuff still pop. Like if you get arrested as a minor and it gets expunged, like now that stuff used to never pop up. But now yes. that stuff pops up. It does. It does. I, I had to do get a criminal record check for a job years ago in 2005. I was working with uh, heroin addicts, not coworkers. I was right. working with uh, the people <laughs> yeah. that my yeah. job was selling them heroin. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. But no, th- it was a, a supervised injection site where you could shoot up heroin under a nurse's supervision, so you didn't die. It was fucking like, Canada, man. They're so much more <laughs> advanced than we are. It sounds like it's from the future or a movie. or Europe that's or like, Canada, yeah, that's not America, like a, where a we would never do that. It was definitely a. European that's like a Kubrick model. subplot <laughs> that started somewhere in like Sweden. Exactly. Sweden, right? Yeah, yeah they was, used to do. And this was based on that. Sweden and then the infection rates and death rates like plummeted. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. HIV rates dropped. Just and yeah, through the doses dropped. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very it still exists. Very efficient and a, and a successful program in Canada. And Vancouver has one of the worst heroin pro. Uh, yeah. Not programs. Problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in North America, um, but so I was working there, but. In order to get uh, uh, legally work there, I had to get a criminal record check. It was part of the thing. You couldn't have a drug record and then work amongst these substances. So they ran a criminal record check, and it came up inconclusive. That's weird. (laughs) That's funny. What does that mean? And then the boss called me in. I'd already been working there for two weeks. He goes, "We can't, we can't schedule you any more shifts until like you go down to the police station and request a thing. They have to fingerprint you and do a thing." And I was like, "I I don't think I want this job that bad. Yeah, I got to go." volunteer to be fingerprinted so i never did that but the criminal record check came back inconclusive and i'd never been charged with a crime but i've been arrested might be dirtbag so, that's weird yeah but i knew what it was about because the boss was like uh so the criminal record check came back inconclusive do you have any idea what that might be about and i was like yes <laughs> yeah I know exactly what it's about and uh i'll give my uh noticed <laughs> <laughs> and i'll see you never again <laughs> it's been nice knowing you you treated me with respect <laughs> i will now take my leave yeah so did you ever do stand up any you said new york you did a couple times yeah i did stand up new york and i did caroline's in new york i was very young i wasn't doing like legitimate gigs i didn't even have an act 
But I remember going to New York, it was 2000, because I remember Bill Clinton was no longer the president. Right. And I went to New York, and I was so excited, because I was like, oh my God, New York City, mm-hmm. the comedians are going to be amazing. They <laughs> live in the, in the yeah. belly of culture and art and comedy history, and everybody's going to blow me out of the water. I'm just a kid from Canada. Yeah. <laughs> and every fucking act that went up, uh, I feel your pain. Right, water. yeah. And I was like, it's too th- He's not even the president anymore. <laughs> yeah. And every fucking person's doing a Monica Lewinsky fellatio mm. joke and a Bill Clinton. Everybody was so horrible. I didn't see <laughs> one funny comedian or original act the whole time I was there. And then I went up there with my stupid, shitty Canadian jokes after, right. you know, not even a proper year of stand-up and killed, which shocked me. But, uh, uh, yeah, I was unimpressed by what I saw of New York at the time. Of course, I didn't go to any cool venues. I just did stand-up New York and Carolines, which are basically a tourist. Uh, I mean, that's Chinese. a close to around the time I started. That's when I showed up to the comedy store, and it was equally as bad. It was like that everywhere. Yeah, yeah. everybody. I mean, you have a president for eight years. Yeah. It's like that. Everyone's I mean, I was fall. Follow- I remember the, when I first got there, There was the, I was following people that were doing sound effects acts. I, I will be honest. At, at that time, I was very underwhelmed by stand-up in uh, the United States. And I would do Seattle fairly often because it was so close to Vancouver. And th- the whole structure of stand-up, I don't know if it's still the same, if it's changed, but the whole structure of stand-up was different than the structure of stand-up in Canada. In Canada, if you emceed the show, you were a, a polished comedian. You were a headliner yeah. who was getting paid to host. Then I would go to Seattle, and they would have... The, the the most novice amateurs hosting the show because oh, it was yeah. like a thankless job. And yeah. So they would just get some kid to host the show. But you just get some kid to host the show, he ruins the show. The only place where that's different in America is urban shows. To to consi- to be the regular host of like a, a black com- comedy show. But at the comedy store, they often don't have a host at all. No, they, they don't. introduce <clears throat> the next act. But only like, on, if only if you're on the- potluck night. And then even the potluck night, they'll have... Um, a, not a seasoned professional, but at least like a mid-level yeah. comic has yeah. been doing because you have to host for like three hours or whatever, and you Host, need to keep the room going. Hosting is a real skill and yeah. it's a real job, and it can make or break the show. You know, yeah, if some guy goes up and shits on the stage. It's your job to fix the situation before you bring up the next poor bastard. Otherwise, mm. the poor bastard has to clean up, and that's not fair to that guy's act. Yeah, it's the host's job to warm up the audience, bring up the first act when the audience seems ready, and then keep them warm. And if the guy kills, then you bring up the next act right away. But right. if the last guy bombs, then you got to bring it back up to a yeah. level of a mid-level kill so that you know the audience is Yeah, prepped. absolutely. So to have a fucking amateur host in the show ruining the whole thing for everybody, it does a disservice to everybody, the club, the guy. The, I think it's just built act. for... Because the way like a headliner show is built... It's like the opener's usually decent, the feature's usually good, and the, I think the the way they're like by the time the feature's halfway through, they'll be doing well, and then the headliner can do in well. In Canada, at least when I was doing stand-up, whoever was headlining and whoever was hosting usually were at the same level. Really? Yeah, and a lot of the great stand-ups I saw were guys I saw hosting a show. Huh. But they were being paid very well to do so because it was a job. Yeah. And then when I would go to Seattle, I was amazed because all the hosts were getting paid like 20 bucks, you know? And I was like, yeah. that's 
How long would the it hosts... It scandalous because it's mm-hmm. such fucking hard work. You can't get it drunk. You can't fuck off. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, yeah. the you gotta memorize the credits. You like gotta it's, do like announcements and make those kind of entertaining and yeah. not boring yeah. as all yeah. hell. And you gotta wait. You gotta be there when the act ends, you know? Yeah. It's like, you gotta pay attention when you're not on stage, which is awful. It's a thankless job. Yeah, because I never smoked, but, you know, there was many acts that I knew were a smoke break when I was doing stand-up. I was like, oh, this guy's on stage. I'm gonna go smoke. Even right. if I don't smoke, because I don't want to sit through this. Right. But if I was the MC, then I'd have to yeah. at least sit through the last few minutes, you know? Yeah. I'm seeing at the comedy store, it was like... I mean, you'd have to do it from 7 to 10.30. Yeah. And there would... The first two hours, I think, of the show <laughs> were... There wasn't even enough time for a smoke break because everyone did three minutes. Yeah, you, could, you didn't even leave the room. So you could take like three hits of a cigarette and then... How many people were on a show? Well, the potluck, the... How many the people open, were on the open mic? 20? The open mic was 20. What the fuck? And then everyone did three minutes and then you had the employees and there were anywhere from... At the time when I used to host, there were like maybe 10 to 12 employees or something, maybe 15. And all of them did three, three-ish. You can kind of let them run the light a little bit. So that would take you all the way to like 10, 15, 10, 30. And then you, you could throw on a couple friends if you, if you wanted and if you had time and stuff. Did but anybody, audience or performer, enjoy that show? Well, that's, that's like the thing about... Exhausting. That's the thing about... Uh, being a good host, like you're saying, is like it. You're on stage so much lot, yeah. during that yeah. that you have to figure out like how to get this audience entertained because right. that open mic part. I mean, <laughs> just thinking about it makes me laugh. Like, because it was such a shit show. But yeah, back then it was it was a, literally a random lottery. Like anybody could sign up, anybody could get on. So you'd have at least like four to five homeless guys every week. Yeah. Genuine, like, like genuine schizophrenics. Yeah. Like you didn't know what they were gonna do. None with the golden voice, like that guy. No, 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 not like that guy. Yeah, they no, were my, just my, lunatics. My first time ever doing stand up was at the comedy store, and I was sitting there waiting to go on. And Bobby Lee goes, "Are you nervous?" I go, "Yeah." He goes, "The guy in front of you, Mickey, is going to wrap himself in the curtain and mumble. You're not going to do worse than that." Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, "What? What do you mean?" And then the guy before Mickey went and wrapped himself in the curtain and mumbled. These are, for, the, these, are, these are the same acts that Jamie Masada feeds every Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah basically. literally. Yeah, yeah, I guarantee basically. you Mickey goes to that every single year. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, hosting is where I learned how to like take the mic off the stand and just go back and forth up on back and forth on stage. Yeah, just you, like the you, almost like the nuts and bolts. Yeah, the technical stuff. The yeah, physical part of being a comedian just going, hey, everybody, like you learn how to say hi a bunch of times. And I learned how to not lie to the audience because you'd be like, this next guy's going to be great. And then they'd just be the worst thing ever. Yeah, I, I, was, I was a bad MC for that reason. Because if, if I was doing that where it was a 20 yahoos and I had to learn how to keep the audience entertained, my default to entertain them is to ridicule all the other acts. And right. It's kind of like a no-no in terms of, of, of the emceeing job is you shouldn't really, unless it's like a Michael Richards incident, you really <laughs> shouldn't point out to the audience how horrible the previous act was. See, you I should felt, really kind of right, like figure right. out a way to uh, convey what the audience is feeling, a sense of awkwardness, without throwing your colleagues under the bus. Not too hard, but you were allowed to. At the store, I remember being told that by Ari. It was like, if they suck and you don't acknowledge it, you look as nuts as them. Yeah, you have to acknowledge it, but like I was just mean. So yeah. I would, even yeah. when I was just doing stand-up, not emceeing, 
if somebody really sucked on the show, you know, I would devote half my act to it, and it would yeah. get laughs. But then I was right. also like a villain. Yeah, you can't you, you because the thing is, it eventually it's gonna be you're, you're gonna be up there bombing your nuts off, and and you know you don't want the same treatment. I yeah, found it's that kind of bad form, but it was also kind of irresistible. Not sure, yeah, yeah, because it's like the joke is right there. You're thinking it. You know the audience is thinking it's the elephant in the room. It needs to be addressed. Plus, you truly hate them. You're filled yeah, yeah. with hatred. You're like fuck <laughs> How this could you guy. Not convey yeah. the hatred. Hosting did make me able to turn a human off. To work because you would host. You'd, I'd sit there right by the piano, right behind the piano on that little seat, and you know you'd get bugged too because when you'd host, open micers would ask if you had extra spots, and you learned how to look directly in someone eye, someone's eyes, just be like, no, no, and not feel anything. Just like I can't, sorry, no, 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 or someone like bug. It just taught you to like completely be able to close someone off because if you didn't, if you opened that door, then you were like a, basically an easy mark. To where like everyone, oh yeah, he's really cool. He'll give you spots. It was the worst. Yeah, I learned how to like be sparing with the, because it's like fun to be mean sometimes, especially when you need it. But like when you know you're up there for basically three hours, like there's too many opportunities for that because a lot of people are going to suck and a lot of them it's just like they're new. So you like, I remember some weeks I would get kind of like hooked on like, oh, I know these are always going to get a laugh if I go, if I make does, fun of the last show thing. show still exists? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and not what, still what there. the purpose though of having 20 random people on a show? I like, don't think it's as many now. Now it's like, I think they've scaled it to 15 and then it's not a random lottery. They kind of like pick... They kind of sift through the, the, who signs well, up. Yeah, they should. Yeah, that makes no sense to me. Like, uh, but there should be a bit of randomness too, because if you're new in town and don't know anybody, you should have at least a chance to get on the open mic. I think you should have one chance, and then <laughs> once you wrap yourself in the curtain and mumble, you should never be booked yeah. again. Yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. Like common sense. You're right. in a business. You're charging people money to watch it. Why would you? But that was. I mean, that was the. Comedy store. That was just part of that place. It was part of its culture back then was like, it was so crazy that, you know, you and I were there at the same time. It, It did create a kind of freedom as a performer that there wasn't anywhere else literally in the country that I knew of. Maybe there... I'm so glad I never... Uh, did stand up in Los Angeles or pursued it in Los Angeles. Now, at this point, had I never quit stand up, let's say I had been doing stand up all this time, it would have mm. been now uh, uh, 17 years. I would have right. been my belt. Instead, I only did eight. But uh, 17 years would be fine to do a show in, in Los Angeles. But I would not want to come here and compete for spots with a bunch of crazy people. Luckily, in right. Canada, you can work in relative anonymity and really uh, uh, gain your. Chops? Yeah. Earn your chops? What's yeah. the phrase? Something about chops? Yeah. You earn them? I think you earn... <laughs> you I don't cut, know you, you cut your teeth? You, you cut your teeth and you... I think people always your just chops. say, do you have chops? Once you have I chops. I think you develop them also. I've never heard of that. I've never, I really I've just, never heard it used that just way. Just three wordsmiths struggling with a very familiar I'm phrase. I'm good with colloquialism. But, <laughs> I've uh, only heard ever people go like, well, I mean, he's got chops now. Yeah. yeah I've never heard yeah. like, well, you need to go blank your chops. You develop them. <laughs> yeah. Go grow some. Grow some chops. <laughs> grow some chops. The facial hair. Harvest some chops. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember being frustrated with like seeing, you know, five or six genuine crazy people on a lineup and not getting a spot one week. But at the same time, you knew you were allowed to at the comedy store be a kind of horrible that was so unusable. But then they wouldn't. You were. You could still come back. 
But you don't have to be that kind of horrible at the comedy store. I think that's a big mistake that amateur comedians make is they think in order to do stand-up, they just know the famous names they've heard of. So in Los Angeles, they've heard of the comedy store. Right. They've heard of the Laugh Factory. They've never heard of the millions of other open mics that are around. Yeah, and yeah. So in Canada, there was no real famous thing. There was Yuck Yucks, which is the one comedy club chain. But there were all these open mics, and I would just do uh, open mics that weren't comedy. I would do all the music open mics and ah. poetry open mics, but do stand-up, which was actually very valuable for two reasons. One, if they didn't know you were a comedian, they laughed harder because everybody else in the show isn't funny. Right. Yeah. And secondly, uh, they were often hostel rooms that didn't like people that were funny. So it yeah. just taught you a lot. Well, you were very, I mean, in comparison to someone who was, like you're like the least sincere thing. You're like a comedian, sort of glib. Yeah. And they're like, oh, look, one of these jerks. Yeah, you sound rehearsed <laughs> up there. Yeah. Yeah. And but, they're also just like, you have your own open mics. Go do those. What the fuck are you coming to our shit for? Like, there's I don't a, think anybody had that attitude. So oh, much. really? No, but I mean, wow. I would, the places I play, a lot of the open mics were just for musicians, so they'd be like in dive bars. And now that's very common to do stand up in a dive bar. You know, there's right, yeah. at the Virgil and, and places like that around town. And uh, I quit stand-up at the, at the wrong time because as soon as I quit stand-up, like within a year, everybody in stand-up looked sort of like me. Yeah. You know? And when I was doing stand-up, I, I would get like ridiculed for how I looked. I had facial hair and the, the horn rim glasses, you know? And then I quit. And then like two years, every, two years later, everybody looked like Zach Galifianakis or was playing an instrument while they did their act. And I was like, when the fuck did this happen? Yeah. I felt so old. I went to the Vancouver Comedy Festival in 2009. I'd been out of stand-up for a year. And every fucking act was playing an instrument and doing non sequitur jokes and yeah. it was like making references to Bell and Sebastian. Right, I right. Like, I was like, when did this happen? Because like when I was doing stand-up, everybody was like a jock in a Toronto Blue Jays ball cap talking yeah. about how women are all bitches and his wife's an asshole. And it was still the 80s. Yeah. When I quit, really. And it really did stay the like, 80s till about 1998. Yeah, well, that's when I started. But I, yeah. it was in Canada, the 80s remained. For uh, Canada is about 10 years behind in everything. So Right. <laughs> Except for heroin uh, maintenance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, you guys are ahead of the curve in heroin maintenance. So when you got into... How did you get into writing other th- things? And then how did you pursue that as like a career up there? Um, was, that, was there a way where you're like, oh, I can make money as a writer? Did you start as a writer? Did you realize you could write well from doing stand-up? I wasn't very good at writing stand-up. I, I was and I wasn't. If you're, the weird thing is that the, the stand-up comedians who are good writers, initially anyways, their first 10 years, they sound like writers. Yeah. You know? It sounds rehearsed. It sounds like they could never change a word. It does. It's, it doesn't remain conversational, and and often it's it's funny, but there's something kind of forced, and so I was kind of like that. I wasn't the kind of guy who could just uh, improvise on stage. Eventually, I was when I got more comfortable. But for a long time, my act was like by rote. Yeah, and you can uh-huh. guarantee that I'd be off stage at the five forty-five mark. Yeah, you know, like I would never do yeah. six minutes because it was like all very uh, uh, precise. Um, but the the writing thing. Well, I I started making more money as a writer. I started doing stuff for the CBC in Canada. And a lot of what I was writing about were was not myself, but pre-existing things. So I had this gig on this national show on CBC called Go, and it was not a very good show. It was one of these shows that considered itself funny. 
Nobody else. <laughs> yeah. Funny. Yeah. It was, initially, it was a variety show, and then after like season four, they started describing themselves as a comedy show, and I was like, well, that doesn't seem right. You know, yeah. You're not. <laughs> but anyways, I used to do this segment called uh, uh, that time of the month. And I had a very large uh, record collection. And this is sort of how I got into old comedy was collecting comedy records. Wait, had? Say that again? You don't have it anymore? No, actually, I, I sold it off because uh, to move, I could not move with 10,000 LPs. 10,000? Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. I had 10,000 LPs. Did wow. you get at least $10,000? <laughs> no. You know, oh. records are not worth as much as people think. Especially comedy records. Well, well comedy yeah. records are definitely worthless. Yeah, they like, really are. It's so sad. But but they, but there's certain like genres like you think like '50s jazz music on red translucent vinyl with yeah. like, a bunch of cool looking black men on the cover is going to be worth a lot of money. Yeah. Nobody is interested in buying jazz records. They'll buy them at a thrift store. Yeah. But if you ever go to a record store in the jazz section, everything is 15 bucks. It's the same records there forever. Nobody buys them. So I there's the exceptions of like the, the two or three biggest artists and their early releases or early pressings. Those can be 200 bucks, but everything else is worthless. People don't pay 200 bucks for them. They'll buy them for 20 bucks. Those records. I had so many so-called valuable jazz records. Uh Eventually I I started giving them away to people I knew would appreciate them because I had to move and had this anchor, this albatross, and I couldn't move with this boxes. It would have cost a fortune to ship that. Yeah, it would have cost the same amount they cost in the first place or more. Yeah. Um, I made some good money on a couple things that I knew would sell well. I had this 45 that uh, was pretty obscure, which I bought in a Salvation Army for a nickel, and it had this great title. It was on London Records, and it was called uh, Audience Reflections of Pollyanna's Dream World Wow. by this band called The Painted Ship. And I think I was like 16 when I bought it. And I was like, that sounds cool. Yeah. And then I brought it home and it was cool. It was this crazy, psychedelic, uh, monotonous organ that was just going beep, 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 over yeah. and over. While this guy with a British accent was saying things like, sights and sounds of a slowly <laughs> expanding mind. Beep, beep, I beep, want beep, this beep, so beep. bad. And then the flip side was called, and uh, I think it was called... Uh, and she said yes. And it sounds sort of like the Stooges. It starts off with this guitar going, bam, bam, da, da, yeah. da, 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 and this guy going, and she said yes. <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. She said yes. <laughs> that was the flip side. So the 45 was amazing. That's so cool. And it was in great shape, and I used to play it all the time. And in Vancouver, I don't know if you know who Nardwar is. Yeah. You know Nardwar is? So I used to go on his show all the time in yeah. Vancouver and play weird records. And I remember showing up at his show with that 45, and he was like, you own that? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. He goes, he goes, that's worth a lot of money. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know. He goes, I think it's worth a lot. They're from Vancouver. They were a Canadian garage band from the 60s. I didn't know this. School. The Painted Ship? The Painted Ship. Okay. And then I went home that uh, day, and I looked on eBay, and I found a copy for sale that was broken in half. Two pieces, and it sold for a hundred dollars. Oh my god! Broken in yeah. half. So I, was like, oh, I guess my coffee must be worth money. So when at I, least two hundred. Yeah. So when I, when I moved, I did sell it. A guy in uh, Sweden bought it off eBay for me for eight hundred dollars. Damn. So just one forty-five. So you know, I made money on that. But comedy records don't make you any any money. Yeah, it's really unfortunate because like the records to me. Well, I got like Lenny Bruce's Carnegie Hall, yeah. which is like a three LP. Yeah. And I was just like looking at it like it's in such good condition, full size poster oh, in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It was like $8. Yeah. 
Yeah. And in my head, because I, lo- I, I loved that I had found it, and it was in, I'm like, man, they're going to want like 50 bucks or more for this. Eight bucks. Yeah. And then you look through all the other comedy records, there are, nothing's over $15. No, and I even own one of the rarest comedy records ever. Well, I own, I own two, one which I broke, um, but uh, also uh, valueless, except for to like a handful of nerds, and even then the value is like $10. Uh-huh. Um, I have a record by Lorne Michaels from 1967. Whoa. Uh, Lorne Lipowitz. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's very rare. There's 12 copies of it in the world because it was pressed... In house at the CBC in Canada to promote his radio show that he was writing for him, and so they just issued it with like a CBC logo on the cover, and on the back it's got Lorne Michaels with a mustache and sideburns and his partner uh, Hart Pomerantz. They were in a comedy team. Damn. And they sent a copy to each CBC affiliate in Canada. So there was one in the Vancouver Record Library, one in Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. And so I had a copy of that, which I stole from the Toronto <laughs> CBC record library. They had three copies there. Like, That's greedy. Nobody's yeah. Nobody's ever even fucking heard this or yeah. wants to. And actually, it had pen marks on the back that some like CBC disc jockey had written on it in the 60s. And there was like a uh, circled, it's, there was like a track called like the Indian Reservation. Uh-huh. And there's all these ballpoint pens says, do not play on air. Do not play on air. <laughs> 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 and uh, honestly, if you listen to it, I actually uploaded a little clip of it onto YouTube. Uh, it is pretty dreadful. And, and really? you, you wonder, like, how did this man amass so much power and intimidation in the world of comedy when you go back and look at his pre-SNL career and it's kind of underwhelming, you know. But was he still learning back then, though? Was he still, yeah, like, he was young? Yeah, just a kid. He was right, like 20, okay, yeah. 25 or something. Wow. So did you keep that record? Like, were there some that you kept? Or did you sell everything? I sold everything except for, I moved here with 100 records, but now I probably only have 20 of them left. 80 of them I gave away. For a record collector, that's something. Yeah. To pare it down that much. Well, honestly, can... I would not have been able to if not for the existence of, of the internet. Mm-hmm. Because now I can, people can, after listening to this, go on YouTube and Google Painted Ship audience reflections of Pollyanna's dream world or and she said yes you can listen to both songs yeah I've, right. I created a playlist while we were talking about it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, have, if, if we didn't live in that uh, era uh, where that's possible then I would have to have kept all that of stuff. course so yeah now you can access anything you know the stuff that I kept uh, were kind of sentimental so I kept kept my surf records because I was moving to California that's totally yeah. and I'll be a moron you know? yeah I'll be a that's cool child. I'll be a, a, a juvenile boy who keeps the surf record but even those I gave away uh, last year to my friend Jay who's big into that stuff and you as long as I knew the person would appreciate it I would give them very valuable records for free just to release the burden that's so, awesome and especially because I learned trying to sell jazz records that you're never going to make as much money as you feel you right. should have so I'd rather it go to the good home as one collection. In Canada, all my comedy records went to one guy in Victoria. And uh, uh, he said, yeah, I'll take them. And he sent a guy with a car, but there wasn't enough space in the car. So he had to do like multiple trips. Oh, man. Wow. And he goes, oh, shit, I didn't know that uh, uh, there was this many. There was well over a 1,000 comedy LPs. But as a collection, as a library in a wall of your house, it's this incredible museum piece. It's every possible conceivable comedy LP, you know. But individually, they're worthless and useless. But as a collection, it was kind of cool. So I kept a handful of things. I'm trying to think what I still have. Two of them are sentimental in their comedy records. One, I don't collect autographs, but these were from a seminal point in my life when I just started stand-up. I have a copy of uh, The 2,000-Year-Old Man uh-huh. that Carl Reiner signed for me. 
Cool. I was very lucky when I was 19, 20. I thought I was so uh, naive that I thought this was just what showbiz was. So George Shapiro introduced me to Carl Reiner when I was 19. And I was like, yeah, that's showbiz. I've been doing stand-up for four months. George Shapiro, <laughs> Seinfeld's manager, Andy Kaufman's manager. He introduces you to uh, yeah. Carl Reiner. That's yeah. just the way it goes. How it goes down. Yeah. And uh, I got Carl Reiner to sign my 2,000-year-old man uh, record. And I still remember every word he said to me. He goes, oh, what's your name? I said, uh, Cliff. He goes, Cliff, Cliff, what? I said, uh, Nesterov. He goes, Nesterov, like Nemerov. I wrote a book with a Nemerov. Well, Cliff, Nesterov, are you a writer or a performer? I said, I'm both. He goes, both good man got to be both Cliff Nesterov. Are you Jewish? Of course you're Jewish. Okay, Cliff Nesterov. Never change your name. Never change your name. That was my interaction with Carl Reiner uh, when I was anointed Jewish. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah, so I still have that record that's signed by him. And uh, I never got Mel to sign that same record. I guess I should, but... Uh, and then the other comedy LP I kept is the uh, SNL record from 75 that has the original cast on the cover. Mm-hmm. And when I was 19 or 20, I did uh, a show. It was my first big gig, 2,000 people in this gorgeous old theater in Brantford, Ontario, which is about two hours from Toronto, and it's Phil Hartman's hometown. And after Phil Hartman was uh, murdered... Uh, his family put on a tribute to him in in Brantford. So I was booked on this tribute, and it was all Canadian luminaries there. Dave Foley hosted it. Wow. Uh, and Lorne Michaels was there. They had a banquet before the show, and I knew who was all going to be there. So I brought my SNL record, and I went up to Dan Aykroyd at the banquet, and I got him to sign his, the, this record you know, above his head. And I said, do you think it would be okay if I asked Lorne Michaels to sign this? I know he's kind of like the guru in your not supposed to maybe approach him or whatever. Yeah. And Dan Aykroyd goes, no, no, Lauren's a great guy. Come on, I'll introduce you. And so Dan Aykroyd introduced me to Lauren Michaels. This is Cliff Nastroff. He's doing on the show. Oh, I look forward to seeing you. And he signed the thing, you know. So I still have that record that was signed by Lauren Michaels. And that wow. was really such a huge uh, gig for me. I couldn't believe it. I'd never had, I don't think I had performed for more than 300 people at the most up to that point. And there was 2,000 people in the audience and I did a sketch I wasn't doing stand-up. I did a sketch that somebody else wrote, and I was doing the straight lines, and this other girl in the, in the sketch was do, had all the comedy lines. And it had this hacky premise. It was a, a spoof of uh, Inside the Actor's Studio, and it was, but it was the porn actors, so it was Inside right. the Porn Actor's Studio, yeah. which is a premise that's been done many times. But anyways, so I had all the straight lines, but I, I, I don't know if I was thinking as a Machiavellian at the time or not. <laughs> it's interesting to think back on it because I was so young. But I had all the straight lines, but there was 2,000 people in the audience. I created a character to do in the sketch. And uh, this is not going to translate to the audio, but uh, I would deliver my straight line, and then the character would kind of repeat all the same gestures that he had done while he was asking the question without saying it again. So I'd go, <laughs> what was it like being there? <laughs> he just <laughs> pantomimed yeah. the words again and moved his hands in the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that after every single straight line, and... It got a laugh every time, and every time it got a laugh, it drowned out the girl's yeah. laugh lines, punch lines. So I got all the laughs, and she got none of the laughs, even though I was supposed to be the serious one. And it was interesting, because the audience, with 2,000 people, I had never had this phenomenon up to that point. It was so interesting, and I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but you receive the laughter of the first 1,000 people immediately, yeah. and then half a millisecond later the next wave of laughter. It happens at the same time, but because they're so far away, you hear it just a beat later. So the laugh was like, 
Yeah, yeah that's and a different timing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you got to slow everything down by like When you watch people do like, beat. you know, when you see someone like Chris Rock do a special, they they go so much slower mm-hmm. cuz they just have to wait. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. Uh, you, honestly some people aren't going to hear it. It is like an odd wave thing. And to them it they don't notice when you do slow it down. They don't notice no. cuz they're there with the pacing, yeah. but you feel you feel like you're like I've waited too long to yeah, the next. You're also like how long do I have to stand here smirking? Like waiting because it's like you deliver the or just like line. pausing. Like if you had your finger up, yeah. like after a tag, yeah. you'd have to like stand there like a statue for yeah. what feels like a full minute. I love that feeling though. Really, I love kind of soaking in it and radiating because it's uh-huh. like when I did stand up, I got very little pleasure out of it actually. Oh really? But in those moments, I got an enormous pleasure. If I had to wait an inordinate amount of time before I could go on, I was like, all right, things are working well. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if, if yeah, the few times I've gone no, up, no more humiliating experience than doing the joke, you know, always works. I and mean, the laughter like ceases immediately. Yeah. You're yeah. Like, oh, what the you're fuck? Like, Wait a Jesus minute. Christ. Well, if that didn't get a huge laugh, we're not, yeah, you're like, oh, things are going to get no. shitty fast here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. An audience can turn your home run into a single real quick. And you're like, well, we are about to be fucked here. Yeah. There was a comedian. We we're talking about emceeing and the talents of emceeing. There was a comedian in Canada named Brent, Butt, who was probably the most successful, uh, uh, well, he's the most successful guy to have a, a, a sitcom in Canada by far. He turned his stand-up career into a sitcom, the only hit sitcom in Canadian history. What was and it called? Corner Gas. Okay. And he ran a gas station in Saskatchewan. And it was sort of like more for our parents than for us. It was like right. a, like a everybody loves Raymond uh, style of humor, I guess. Mm-hmm. More clever than that, but still that kind of a demographic. And Brent's a great guy. He's one of the funniest MCs at any stand-up show. And he used to run a regular night in Vancouver, which was the night where all walks of stand-up came to hang out on Tuesdays, whether you're amateur, professional, in from off the road, in from L.A., filming a movie up there, whatever. Everybody hung out there. And there was nobody funnier uh, 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 hosting. So you can always go to the show and enjoy it because no matter how terrible the show was, he was always hilarious. He was the master at cleaning up the mess. And he would stay up there and destroy just to the right fever pitch so that the person behind him coming up could still follow him. Yeah. But where it was truly uh, 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 hilarious. He used to run this other night on Wednesdays that never really hit. And he would go up there and bomb this experienced 30-year veteran (laughs) for like 15 minutes. And he would finish it off going, folks, Jesus, you're making me work hard. Are you ready for your first act? And I would go up. And I was like, well, there's no, why don't I just go home? Why don't we just cancel the show? Because if you can't get a laugh out of this audience none of us are going to and nobody ever did it i'm so still sometimes there are those rooms where it's like where there's like super hot rooms where you're like everyone's killing everything you set up are getting laughs then there's those rooms where it's just a collection of people who are just not gonna laugh at anything i had friday friday night i had i i took a i took one right to the face at the comedy store Uh and it wasn't like full bombing but it was like zero momentum i got my first good laugh on like the third thing I said, I was like, okay, maybe now we can start. And it just, after every joke, they if they laughed, and they stopped. It was just like telling the first joke over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, and it, to where I went back Saturday, and I was like, if this goes like that again. Like, it was one of those things. I haven't had that happen in a long time where I was like, Wait, tonight. what was the end of the sentence? If this happens again. I was again, like, if this happens again, I'm going to have to kill all these jokes. I was like, oh, maybe jokes, all these jokes uh, have to go. If it was me, I would kill myself. No, 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 no. I've stopped saying that. Yeah, I was like, I can't. I was like, tonight has to go well because that bothered me. So it was that. It was one of the few times where 
I've had a set that went bad enough to where I hung out afterwards just standing around like I had to watch I wanted to see the other comedians go up in that room to be like was it that hard for you too? Yeah, you want all your friends to bomb after after. I just wanted to make sure, make it that <laughs> I wasn't you crazy. Want it to be a collective experience, you know. Yeah, you want to know it wasn't rooms that are like a black hole where yeah. nothing ever works. Well, at least you know that nothing ever works for everybody. You know, everybody's uh, eating it because it's just like uh, one of those. Only if you're on early though, because if you already have gotten off, you're like, all right, maybe it's just the room. But if yeah. it's if you're on later and everyone's been saying like it's kind of a tight room. I go, well, I'm going to be the one that's going <laughs> right, to... Yeah. 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 I do I'll that do, too. I'll <laughs> yeah. be dirtier, do more crowd work, yeah, do yeah. something like, to get them going. But even then, it's like, yeah. if it works, you're like, I still had to do something different to get it I done. I think the dumb thing I always think when something like, oh, it's a bit of a tight room, I'm like, looks like I'm just going to have to be real. It's <laughs> yeah. still a tight room. Looks like I'm going to have to loosen them up. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know what, I'll, I'll be the yeah. first one that says, like, you guys are kind of tight when they've heard that nine times and they're sick of it. Right, exactly. <laughs> um. Okay, so you got into, you got you were making money as a writer. I was writing for the CBC because I had this record collection. I was doing this segment called That Time of the Month, mm-hmm. where I would come on this national radio show. I would play clips. We we every segment each time we did it had a theme to it, but I would play clips from weird LPs that I owned, right? And we would play a funny clip of it, and then we would make make fun of it. The host and I would tell jokes, and then, you know, I wrote a, I would write a little script for these things. And when I originally got hired for this show, we improvised it. They were doing a, a sh- broadcast from the National Archives of Canada in Ottawa, which is the capital. It's like Washington, D.C., Ottawa, in Canada. And so I played a bunch of weird Canadian novelty songs, like uh, uh, songs about Saskatchewan and uh, yeah. uh, a song called Moose Jaw Woman, which uh, <laughs> was pretty funny and stuff like that. And, and then we bantered about it. We just improvised it. And apparently it was a big hit. I don't think I ever heard it. But they told me that they had this enormous reaction from it. So the next season, they were like, we would like to do that regularly. It was a big hit. And uh, we're trying to free up our workload. We want to hire people who are kind of sustained. They can write it themselves and basically be ready to air without too much pre-production. I said, I'd love to do that. So I did that for the first year. And it was good exposure. It was a national show. It had like a million listeners every Saturday morning. And I would hear from people on the street. They'd be like, oh, I was driving through uh, 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 Vancouver Island, and I heard you on the radio, man. It was hilarious. It was great. I was like, oh, thank you so much. That's cool. And then the second season, they started tinker. They, they wanted it all scripted, and they started tinkering with them. So like half the script was mine and half was theirs, and I was starting to have to deliver jokes that were written by other people that right. I didn't like, but yeah. still appear as myself, as Cliff Nesteroff, and deliver them, and that was a little bit tough. So then I'd bump into people and they'd be, "Hey man, I was driving through Calgary. I heard you on the radio. That was that was that was that was good. Cool man, <laughs> cool. Was, okay, thank you." Yeah. Third season, they take the script out of my control completely. Now I'm just delivering jokes that are written by other yeah. people, and it's still as myself. And then people are like, "Hey, hey man, I heard fuck you. On you. The radio. <laughs> I heard you on the radio." Yeah. Like, thank, uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, that's just a statement. There's yeah. no... Hey, I saw you on that show, and you go, oh, and then, then nothing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was a lot of that. So I eventually stopped doing that, but it paid <laughs> me okay. I always thought it would lead to something because it had like a... A, a lot of listeners. Culture, yeah? yeah. And I did get a pilot out of it when I was 25. I did a pilot for my own show uh, up there. That's it, definitely something. That's cool. Uh, it, it aired in like a, a pilot netherworld, like on satellite radio before anybody listened to it, like in the Yukon at like three in the morning and then never again. And I don't have a copy of it, but I had done this pilot called thrift store legends, which took that premise uh, to the next level where I would discover a weird record in a, in a thrift store and then try and track down the story behind it. That's cool. Kind of like a a funny 
This American Life scenario, like an audio documentary almost. And so the pilot was about uh, famed NHL hockey player Guy Lafleur, who in 1977 put out a LP <laughs> of hockey instructions set to a continuous disco beat. Wow. <laughs> with backup singers. And he's got a thick French-Canadian accent. Too, oh, so my God. He would say things on the LP like, my favorite thing to do is to uh, skate over the blue line and <laughs> pass it over to Steven Pierre, back to me, and shoot it high. And then you hear, shoot it high. <laughs> shoot it high. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Yeah. I it love like it. Oh, wow. In my head, it was like. When you're skating over the blue line, before you get to the goalie, don't forget to hesitate. 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 Bum, 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 bum. Wow. And at one point he does this fake play-by-play and he goes, I go over the blue line to Steve Shutt. Back to me. To Shutt. To me. The red light goes on. Go, 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 go. Yes, you can do it. You know you can do it. Wow. Baby, Amazing. all you gotta do is try. Bum, 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 bum. Try. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, anyways, that was the LP. Wow. Was it a hit? No. Okay. <laughs> He's like, obviously not. But it, had a, it had a gatefold cover, and it, the cover was like a blue, red, white, and blue streak of the Montreal Canadiens logo, and then Guy Lafleur with his receding hairline and long hair flowing in the wind, and it was called Lafleur! Exclamation point. Damn. Um, so the pilot was me trying to reason, why, why does this exist? How does this exist? Yeah. You know? And I go to the, the address advertised on the back of the record. Now it's a vacant lot. I'm interviewing people. Do you know where I can find Guy Lafleur? And then it, it culminates at the end where I finally track down Guy Lafleur and I grill him. I go, why? Why? What, what, what happened? What is this? And he goes, oh, it was a very good uh, record. The guy ran in hockey school, said I should do this. We had a very good uh, disco group, you know, Toulouse. Toulouse. Toulouse, they were very big in Montreal in 1977. Uh, no, I never heard of Toulouse. It was a very hot summer. We recorded in the studio. I was only in my Speedo, you know. Yeah. He told me this great little story. That was the pilot, and it led to nothing. But those, it paid me well. I think I made a, a few thousand dollars just to do the pilot. But So writing paid me infinitely more, which is not saying much, than stand-up uh-huh. in Canada. And in Vancouver, you can only go so far as a stand-up doesn't matter how good you are or how long you've been doing it. You'll never make more than a certain amount of money and you'll never reach more than a certain uh, size of an audience, especially pre-internet at the time. Of course, yeah. Pre-YouTube and stuff like that. So so the signs were pointing that maybe writing is, is more lucrative uh, than stand-up. So it wasn't that I was a better writer than stand-up or that my stand-up act was literary. It was more just like an artistic... Uh, um, avenue and I, I don't know I, I also have a tendency to get bored with each art form so I'll do everything for about eight years and then I'll, I'll quit so right now I'm a historian and I'm already bored with that how many years in are you well I started writing about comedians for WFMU in 2008 and then I started getting attention around 2009 and then I got the book deal in 2012 and now it's 2015 so we'll so you have another year or two years, yeah a year or two yeah yeah then you got to stop being a historian. Not got to stop, but you'll be bored of being a historian. Yeah. Then well, you can become la- a futurist. Well, last time I was on uh, Mark Maron's show, he introduced me as a comedy historian, and I like cringed. I made like an audible sound into the mic. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And he goes, "What's wrong?" And I was like, "Ah, oh. like 
historian There's yeah well because how how old are you nobody likes a historian historians don't get laid historians aren't cool <laughs> i like yeah. historians you think of a historian you think of like arthur schlesinger jr you yeah. think of leonard malton i think of gore vidal or something <laughs> facial hair kind yeah. of square i think about shelby foot that's who i think of oh, immediately yeah. he's cool <laughs> maybe i'm getting older he's civil war historian that doesn't sound cool Ah, it's so cool. Howard Zinn is kind of cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's got like a rebellious quality yeah, to him. Was, but he, you're never like you're what thinking about Hitchens. Of like, Hitchens is a historian. No, I don't think he was a historian necessarily. But he was he had cool cred because he was like being he was he a was vocal, so bombastic. Well, you, he was a vocal atheist when that was becoming big. You mentioned Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal yeah. dabbled in all art forms as a novelist, yeah. as a essayist, as a screenwriter, as a personality, as a yeah. talk show guest. Yeah. Yeah. Same with Christopher Hitchens. He was as much of a talk show guest as a historian, and I like that. I like Plimpton. I am of that persuasion as well because of the stand-up background. I still like to be on a microphone. I still yeah. like to tell stories. I'm pretty, you know, I'm not bad at that, but. Uh, 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 generally, I think the phrase historian has a stigma to it, and that stigma is that this person is going to be boring. Right. And that's, that's a danger that I fear. And I know my book is not boring, if you'll allow me. <laughs> no, not at all. License. It's not boring. And that was kind of the mandate. My mandate wasn't even to tell the history of comedy. My mandate wasn't even to highlight the things that have been overlooked. My mandate was to write a book that is not boring. It's got right. the word history in the title. But I don't care if you like comedy or not. You'll read the book and you'll find it interesting. Uh, you'll find it compelling. And th so that was my big struggle. Even when I got the contract for the book, they said, we want you to write about vaudeville at the start. And I was like, I don't know how to make that interesting. Yeah. That sounds like the most boring thing ever. And, and I love that. Story. It was so interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I did figure out a way to make it interesting. And this sounds like obvious advice to every <laughs> writer and every comedian and every historian, but really, Be all the right books don't seem to understand this. Uh, cut out the boring parts <laughs> yeah. and just leave the interesting parts. So when I was researching vaudeville, I just like glommed onto whatever was really interesting. And there were things that are maybe more historically important, hypothetically, but mm -hmm. were also more boring. So they're not in there. Yeah. And then there's things that are maybe arguably less historically important, but ultimately more fascinating, like morphine addiction was a big thing on the vaudeville circuit, you know? Yeah. You know, and I don't mean to equate addiction with smoking pot, but, you know, most stand-up comics are an enormous percentage, maybe more than any other art form, comedy uh, comedians are pot smokers. Yeah. In the 20s, it was morphine. All the comedians were, were, were using morphine. I found that really interesting. Now, I don't know if that's historically important or not, but I think it would be... Uh, uh, interest a, a contemporary audience to read about that. So I wrote about that, and that's in there. Because um, I've read uh, you know, all, the, all the showbiz history books, and I am interested in that subject matter. And yet, half those books are so boring. Yeah. So if they can't hold my interest, they're certainly not going to hold the interest of somebody who's not already into the topic. So when I was writing this book, I was like, what would interest people that aren't even interested in the topic? Right. And cut out all the shit that's, that's boring. What do you find? What did you find that you think interests people that maybe aren't interested in comedy or the history of comedy that can grab them? What do people? What do normal people who maybe aren't comedy fans find interesting about the art form? I don't know what they find interesting about the art form, but people are interested in sex. 
They're interested in violence. They're interested in something they can relate to. So the theme of my book is uh, struggle and, um, well, struggle for sure. Oh, influence. So everybody can relate to struggle, I think. And you'll notice throughout the book, I tell the story of people like Larry David or Albert Brooks or Lorne Michaels. But the Lorne Michaels story in my book, and there's a substantial amount about him in there, his story in my book ends in the year 1974. When Larry story- David's story in my book ends in the year 1981. Right. Uh, and Albert Brooks's story in my book ends in 1973. So this is before they all became stars. We already know what happens. We want to know what happened. Yeah. And we want to hear about them failing because that's inspiring to all of us because we're all failures. Yeah. And right. some of us are successful, but most of us are not. But all the people that are successful were failures. And then the rest of us still are failures. So we can all relate to that. So a lot of my book is about the struggle of trying to succeed and how everybody fails forever until they succeed. So uh, that, I think, resonates with people who are not necessarily interested in the art form. Right. And then, uh, uh, you know, my book is... It's serious, but it also does not ignore the things that excite people so there's a lot of sex in there and there's a lot of drugs in there and there's a lot of violence in there and i could be criticized for that but honestly i seldom am criticized for that simply because i also tell the actual serious story using right. those devices so yeah I, I i didn't find any of it gratuitous or like unnecessary because it was all framed around like yeah, framed here around. are the mob was running everything in the 50s and 60s yeah. so naturally sex and violence and drugs are going to come with that That's and right, yeah. There were plenty of like anecdotes in between, you know, you discussing like how the mob ran things, which like you're saying with removing boring things, you could have gone on and on about the details of how the mob ran show business that probably would have gotten boring after a while, unless you wanted to read about the fucking mob or something. But for a book like this, I found that fascinating. I knew that they had their hands in the entertainment world, but I did not know it was that far reaching. Yeah. And they basically fucking ran comedy. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So I found that fascinating. And then all the anecdotes within it were fucking hilarious. Like how 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 comedians just like accepted it as fact pretty much. Yeah, well, boss is a mobster sometimes and they're going to probably kill you if you don't yeah. you know, do your job. I'm like, and I've ever complained about anything in stand-up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My bosses are at least just business owners. Yeah for fucking three or four days not a mobster who's literally controlling an entire circuit of comedy yeah. and i might die if i don't do my job it was just it was mind-blowing to me yeah yeah i mean some people know about the mafia in, in connection to like singers yeah frank sinatra is the famous yeah. example but back in those days singers and comedians worked together on the same bill so yeah. you had one comedian per show not 10 mm-hmm. comedians per show or what was it 30 30 yeah. right in one show but you had one comic, and you had a singer, and you had an orchestra. Yeah, I mean, that's how Rick team. Rickles started for opening for Sinatra. That was his big break. I don't think Rickles ever actually opened for uh, uh, Sinatra. Or not did he get put be, on? Not to be didactic. Okay, no, details, yeah. But I don't think he... Well, you are the historian, so we're going to... Yeah, no. It, Sinatra loved Rickles. And Sinatra loved anybody that would make fun of him. Uh, uh, he never opened for him? No. Huh. No, Rickles. Fair enough. No, Rickles was a lounge act at the Sahara Hotel... And at the Sahara, you had all the big stars walk through that lounge to get to the main room or get to the casino or get to the upstairs to the hotel. 
So when you had a guy like Rickles on stage, it's kind of a casual environment. There's people sitting down at tables watching the show, but there's a lot of cross traffic as well. And Rickles would ridicule the cross traffic, and then often it would be somebody like Frank Sinatra. So that's where Sinatra started seeing him uh, regularly. And, and Rickles played Miami Beach. Sinatra and all those guys were always in Miami Beach. And then Rickles started playing here. Uh, is the Rickles mother story fake then? Have you ever heard this story where Rickles says his mother like, went to Frank Sinatra and was like, if you could take a look at my boy? Yeah, that sounds contrived. Yeah. I haven't heard that story. I haven't okay. heard that. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, no. Rickles' uh, 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 career was orchestrated by the mafia in, starting in 57, 58. And it's weird because Rickles wrote this paper-thin memoir that's ghostwritten by this guy. Uh, I think his name is... Uh, David Ritz, he's a real hack writer. He, he does all these ghost-written books. And if you look at his like uh, bibliography, it's like 500 <laughs> ghost-written books. Lieber and Stoller, Ray Charles, The Temptations, Don Rickles, they're all shit. Don't read any of them. He's a terrible writer. But the Rickles book is like, you could read it in the bathroom in one sitting. It's that thin. Right. But there's no reference to the mob in that book except in reference to Frank Sinatra and these thick-necked guys. What Rickles never talks about is that he was managed by the mob starting in 57, 58. His original manager was the grandfather of Stephen Weber from Wings. <laughs> what the yeah, fuck? yeah, yeah. That was a good show. Yeah. So Stephen Weber's <laughs> grandpa was this guy named Willie Weber, and then his dad is a guy named Stu Weber who took over the family business. Willie Weber in the 50s managed all the comedians that nobody else would manage because they sucked. <laughs> Don Rickles, uh, Pat Henry is a real obscure name who was an opening act for Sinatra later. Uh, uh, this guy, Mickey Shaughnessy, who was a character actor who mostly played police officers who'd done stand-up in Philadelphia. All these guys nobody has ever heard of. A guy named Eddie White, all obscure, all bad. This guy, Willie Weber, would handle anybody. He was like the sad sack manager. Uh, he got Don Rickles booked at a place in Ocean Parkway, I guess in, in Brooklyn or the Bronx, I don't know, uh, uh, called the Elegante. That was the name of the, the, the club. They said it was a front for Vito Genovese and his, uh, his mob faction, part of one of the five families. And the guy who ran it was the heir to a cardboard box manufacturing empire. And that fellow's name was Joe Scandori. And I forget his father's name, but also Scandori. So they ran this nightclub. Rickles isn't booked in it. They love him. They think he's hilarious. This guy, Joe Scandori, who's connected to the mob, says, I want to manage you. I want to get out of the nightclub business, and I want to handle you. I think you're hilarious. So that day, the mob took over Don Rickles' career. Right. And they visited uh, 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 Willie Weber, Stephen Weber's grandfather, and said, uh, you're no longer handling this kid, Don Rickles. We're handling him now. And he goes, well, that's, no, I mean, we got a contract. I have a 10-year contract with Don Rickles. No, you don't. Uh, uh, yeah, I do. So if you read Don Rickles' memoir, it says, uh, Willie Weber taught me a lot, but it was time to move on. <laughs> <laughs> One sentence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it says in the same passage, it says, no hard feelings. Wow. wow. And then when I was doing my research of this book, I find these court documents that say Weber versus Scandori and Rickles wow. because, uh, for breach of contract because Don Rickles was, was uh, breaking the contract illegally. And then there's no follow-up that I could find on that court, 
court case. You wonder you wonder if they, they paid, paid him off the or house. they just were like, we'll murder you. Well, there was a guy named Ralph Pearl who was a Las Vegas columnist. He was the only person I ever read anything that referenced it. And he wrote a book in the early 70s. And he talks about how poor Willie Weber died of a broken heart. He lost his, uh, his star client to the mob. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. So Don Rickles has never talked about The mob that. seems like they weren't very nice. You know, <laughs> as much as I like The Godfather, they <laughs> right, seem yeah. like a bit of a bummer. As charming as those good fellas were yeah. <laughs> back in 1993. When Argus told out. me a story a couple of weeks ago. There's a comedian at the comedy yeah, Argus. Sure. Argus told me a story of that one night in New York years ago, so for some reason, uh, Frank Sinatra and Desi Arnaz got into it, and Desi Arnaz knocked Sinatra out. And so Sinatra puts in a call and says, I want him out. I want him rubbed out. And then it goes to Giancana, and Giancana's like, this is a big hit. Now, this could be a completely fabricated story, but Argus told me it, and it's, I like it. And he could, Giancana goes, this is a big hit. I got to go to the top, which at the time was Capone's widow. And she, and she basically was like, you can't touch a, a hair on Ricky's head because he used to be like Al Jr.'s best friend. And so that's why Sinatra founded the Anti-Italian Defamation League because Ricky Ricardo owned the rights to The Outsiders at the time, which was like a mob TV show. The Untouchables. The Untouchables, sorry. The Outsiders. The Untouchables. And so all Sinatra could do for getting knocked out was start the Anti-Italian Defamation League to get back at, that, that at Ricky. That sounds like two different stories combined to me. The story that I know of is that Desi Arnaz is the one who was going to get killed by the mob. And the reason he was going to get killed by the mob is because he produced the TV show The Untouchables, right. which was full of Italian mobster stereotypes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so the head uh, heads of the uh, families at that time objected to the show, and the Anti-Italian Defamation League was founded to fight back against the stereotypes of The Untouchables. Right. And that there was a hit on Desi Arnaz's life because of it, but it was called off because it would be too high-profile it would open up a can of worms and in investigations if if Ricky Ricardo had been murdered. So they chose not to. But uh, after like the third season of The Untouchables, suddenly everybody's name is like Bernie Smith <laughs> instead of like Antonio. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that's the story that I that I. I like it that uh, Ricky Ricardo knocked out Frank Sinatra. I there's think a, there's a story at the the Polo Lounge in Beverly Hills, which is still there. Uh, Frank Sinatra, they used to bring like rotary telephones to your table if yeah. you call, you know. Uh, apparently that's amazing. Sinatra, apparently you see Sinatra, that in movies and old TV shows? And I always used to wonder, like, did they ever actually do that? Or is that just easier for the TV yeah. show to not have How to like... How long is the cord? Yeah, yeah. And isn't everybody in the bar tripping over it? Everybody's right, right, right. giant phone cord. In my head, I'm like, that's just for like, it's easier to shoot that on an old TV you remember TV those show. old restaurants that would have like a buzzer? There'd be a buzzer at your table to get the waiter. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They yeah. obviously had wiring. Right. But yeah. But to drag... Yeah, you know, a call I mean? for you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> With like a 50-foot cord. So anyway, sorry. Yeah. Well, apparently, I don't remember if Sinatra was upset that somebody was being loud at the next table over. I think maybe a guy came over to Sinatra's table and said, could you guys keep it down? You're being a bit disruptive. We're having a nice dinner over here. Yeah. Sinatra t- picked up the rotary phone and bashed this guy's face in until he was crippled. And it was right. just a bloody mess. The guy was the president of the United States of America. <laughs> Lyndon Johnson had never had his ass handed to him like that in his entire life. Uh, the guy was the president of uh, Hunt's Tomato Paste. No way. Ooh. What and the fuck? Uh, he smashed his face in, and Sinatra was drunk or whatever. And Whoa. The guy out there. Later, Sinatra had to pay for the guy's reconstructive surgery to have his 
full face redone with plastic surgery because he his face with a rotary phone. Yikes. Yeah. And that's a true story? It's in a book called Mr. S by Frank Sinatra's valet. I can't tell you what's true or not true. Wow. Argus said that the, the, the Arnez story was in Arnez's book, but I wonder. I don't know. Argus seems like it's tough with him. I mean, he's seen a lot. Yeah. He's been through a lot. Like in, But it just seems like I could see him being the kind of guy who would just embellish some details just for fun. He said that. Because uh, why not? The Lucille Ball show, uh, for I Love Lucy, they had the same studio audience every episode. And that's why you hear a lot of similar laughs, which that seemed conceivable. They just would record that stuff and play it over. I don't know. Argus is the best historian. Argus. (laughs) Have you ever talked to him? Argus likes to compare himself to uh, Will Rogers. Huh. Interesting. So uh, suddenly I have no respect when somebody says, I'm like, why are you referencing a guy from the 20s? Right. I'm a regular Will Rogers with my commentary. It says it on his website. A modern day Will Rogers. Yeah, I mean, a lot of his references predate him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would be insulted if anybody called me the modern-day Argus Hamilton. When you, oh, no, that won't when, you, when you think about how, like, you get bored of something, I wonder because you've been, you know, despite you wanting to cringe at it, you've been a someone who's interested in the history of comedy for a while now. Do you think maybe if you are getting bored of it, do you think that's, Maybe the, you're seeing the end of the so-called boom that we're experiencing, or you're seeing it change. Well, I'm not bored of it because of the boom. He just spends. I mean, every boom has to bust. That's uh, yeah, just cause and effect. You know? right. So, if you play the stock market and you're making a gazillion dollars, you better get out now. You know, because it's gonna bust. It's the same with the comedy boom. Same with any boom. It's impossible to predict when the crash happens or how. Right. Uh, there was some article last week that said, like, podcasts are just beginning, dot, dot, dot. And I was like, really? And I guess that's possible because with every boom, you just don't think that it could possibly get any bigger. Right. And then it always does. And then it exp- yeah. you know, deflates or everybody becomes homeless and lives in their car. Right. Um, this boom's a little bit different because not everybody is making money on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas in the 80s, during the comedy boom, everybody was making a lot of money, like middle acts. We're making more money in the 80s than any headliner makes now. Right. Crazy. Like a club headliner. So uh, now that show business is more atomized, there's more avenues and there's more uh, chance to uh, zero in on your respective audience. But then the money is also atomized. So you can sustain yourself. I make a decent living, but it's probably less money than you would have made in the, in the eighties on an equivalent boom. Mm-hmm. So in a uh, weird way, do you think because there's less money, there's less chance that people are going to go broke because they bought into heavy. I think that is the case. I think this boom will bust. I just don't know in what capacity. Yeah. Because there's now an audience for the shittiest comedians, you know, they can have their own podcast and they can have a cult following of 10,000 people and 10,000 people is a very small audience. But if you guys got booked for a stand-up gig in front of 10,000 people, that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So I, I really don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we're, we're – we, we are headed toward the bust. Any boom is headed toward the bust. You just yeah. Know when or how it's going to happen and what it's going to look like. Yeah, it's kind of unpredictable because it's never happened in this way. Like you're, like you're saying, there's so much new technology that you can now be applied to Maybe comedy. the bust will happen when the internet has like the great crash. 
Maybe. Uh, all the media is accidentally erased. <laughs> right. Every server is wiped. Everything I ever wrote online, every podcast you ever did, right. now it's just all gone. It's We're all back like to zero. The stock market of 29, yeah, and the internet. Nobody's internet's working anymore, you know. Back to the end of Fight Club. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, the fa- I think a lot of it, so much of it's what comedians do now is given away for free. A lot of a, bu- a bust a lot of times comes from like people losing their expendable incomes or like that's what happened to the art bust. The art bust followed the the real estate bubble because all of a sudden these people that were leveraging their houses to buy art they didn't have that money so they couldn't buy art. But so well their investment well, it's I, like you're well, losing any investment. There's well, no investment in yeah no one a buys art now besides time. Well, what happened in the in the eighties? Why did it bust? Do you guys think? The, it was it was I think the economy and then the cl- a lot of those sm- there was. Because when the boom happened, there were comedy clubs everywhere. That was a big joke because anyone with a brick wall all of a sudden yeah. had a comedy club. Yeah. So you could headline all of a sudden and go everywhere. And everyone all of a sudden wanted to go out and see stand-up. So there were these audiences. And then I I think it was like the when the uh, – you're talking pre – what it would have been? Like 1990. Yeah, like that. Like that when that – the stock market – there was a crash then, I believe. I think it was the the um, – the oversaturation of yeah. of comedy, yeah. both in like, say you were living in Des Moines, Iowa, or wherever, like whatever mid level city, like you could go kind of go, oh, there's stand up, there's stand up here, so you would go from just watching like or listening to comedy on vinyl, like high quality stuff, to kind of seeing a lot of like mid level garbage. So you would be like, yeah, well, I guess, I mean, that was stand up. Some people, and then it all went on cable, yeah, and then did cable. Curious. I think had something to do with the two that all of a sudden stand up was available to watch on TV. So you less well, people that were going earlier. A lot of people think that the boom started because of cable TV gave more stand up a platform and people right. interested. But I think that uh, th- that's a good point about the oversaturation of like shitty comedy. Oh people yeah, going to a stand up show that sucks and going, well, this sucks. I yeah. don't like it anymore. Yeah. Um, but is that? But why didn't that happen sooner? Why didn't that happen in 1985? Because a lot of those comedians were pretty dreadful then. I think a lot of people decided to... The boom was so big that anyone could decide. It was like you got a good 10 minutes and you could go on the road all of a sudden. You would go be an opener and get paid. But he's saying they had that in in 85, though. I think what happened is when you could start watching garbage comedy at home, you got so tight. There would be so much crap... You're like, why would I even go watch it somewhere? The thing I find interesting about the 80s comedy boom is that all your giants today started then. Louis C.K., uh-huh. Mark Maron, yeah. Sarah Silverman, John Stewart. All the people that are now the... Uh, titans of comedy. Yeah, the yeah. titans started then and didn't quit when it imploded. Yeah. Everybody else quit. All those people that sucked went back to their day jobs. The people who actually had them in them. Even guys like Andy Kindler and Todd Glass... Todd, Todd Glass, who now has the respect of the community, he started doing stand-up like in 1983. I did not know that. Yeah. I have a review of for him in I Philadelphia at the Comedy Works from 1985. Talking about what? Young, talks about young impressionist Todd Glass. Yeah. And that's wow. remarkable to think how long he's been at it. It took him this many yeah, years to... Kindler to, started in like Minneapolis in the 80s. Yeah, like 85, Damn. 86. Yeah. And uh, CK, same thing, 85. I mean, that's a long time, uh, and it's a testament, and I think inspiring to most comedians to realize how long it takes, you know? Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld's little cliche analogy was that you do stand-up for three years, it's like being a three-year-old. You do stand-up yeah. for 12, year old, 12 years, you're like a 12-year-old. You do it for 20 years, you're like a 20-year-old. You're starting to figure it out. By the yeah. time you've been doing it for 30, now you're an adult. You got it 
almost figured out. You know? yeah, yeah. But it takes that long. And uh, it's true. All these guys started in the 80s in the comedy boom. In a way, they were probably lucky they started right bef- before they were any good. The boom kind of like, you yeah. know, exploded because yeah. they never got a taste of any money. They were never that good anyway. Yeah. So they were able to kind of. They literally like, were only doing it because they liked doing it. And like when it the was- recession hit in 2008, all these people were like, oh, we're feeling it. And I was like, I didn't have money before it yeah, or my now, mom, so I don't notice. Yeah. I remember my mom saying that to me. On the stock market after my that. mom yeah. was like, it's good that you don't have a real job because no one can really fire you from it. I was like, yeah, no, I'm working less, but like, no one came and knocked on my door. I was like, you got to go. Like I just kind of like hung in there, but poorer. Yeah, yeah. There was no four hundred one k for me to lose, yeah. <laughs> or like I'm getting laid off. I'm like I'm in like serving tables and taking road gigs. I'm like I'm not feeling this at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think those guys probably like didn't really notice. You'd assume, right? They were so young and new. Well, the one thing they I know they did notice was that now there was less places to work. Mm-hmm. So now you're not getting as many. Gigs, you're not getting as much stage time. There's less comedians, so hypothetically, you should be getting more stage time. But now there's less stages, yeah. so you're getting less stage time. And you're playing places like uh, the Comedy Cellar in New York in 1991. There's literally nobody in the audience, so you're going up there. You still have to do a show, but there's nobody there. So it, it, they did notice. Uh, a lot of them got into writing. There's this great clip. I don't know if it's still on YouTube, but it's of Caroline's Comedy Hour. Remember that show? Yeah, yeah. A and E in the 90s. There's a clip from like 91 or 92 and the host is Colin Quinn and they used to do these little interstitial sketches like to to bookend the commercial breaks and Colin Quinn does this uh, intentionally cheesy joke and it doesn't go over and he goes, God damn it. And he storms off the stage and the camera follows him and he goes into the writer's room. They had a writer's room on Caroline's Comedy Hour that wrote these interstitial sketches and he opens the door and he goes, who wrote this shit? And he's like, uh, they do this bit where he points at one writer and they say something and it's just jokes back and forth. But the joke now, unintentionally, is who those people are that he's reaming out. He, Colin Quinn opens the door and he says, who wrote this shit? And the shot <laughs> is of Louis C.K., Susie Essman, Dave Attell, yeah. and Jon Stewart. <laughs> Jesus Christ. In 91. So they're all nobody. So this like, yeah. footage doesn't mean anything in 1991. Yeah. But now it's like Colin Quinn, Susie Essman, Louis C.K., Dave Attell, and Jon Stewart all together writing this shitty end of the boom era uh, stand-up that's show. crazy it's amazing you know so yeah there's probably a terrible review of the dana carvey sketch show that has a picture of the cast you're like whoa look at that fucking cast yeah, yeah. yeah you cover that in the I book do, too yeah, yeah that yeah. show I, what i liked about the i mean in in a lot of different sections of the book is um how you've only usually hear one or two things any any era is usually crystallized with like one piece right. of information or one person to represent it right. where it'd be like People would always hear like, yeah, man, Lenny Bruce had to perform in strip clubs. But then in the book, it would be like, you, you kind of let the reader know like that was common. Yeah. Like a lot of comedians did that. It wasn't sure. just Lenny who did this one crazy, yeah. dark, weird thing. It wasn't like this. Because I'd used to read or hear that it was his decision where he was like, I'm only going to do strip clubs because I don't want to perform at these supper clubs and be clean. As we're in real life, it was like all these comics just took these gigs because that was a place to earn 10 bucks or 20 yeah, bucks or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. and especially in certain, uh, in certain regions. Like Lenny Bruce mostly played strip clubs around uh, Los Angeles, but Miami Beach 
which mm-hmm. if you read the book, you know, it was like really an important place. I've never even been there, but it was really an important place for comedians and for show business. Yeah. Before Las Vegas existed, Miami Beach was the same thing. It had all the hotels, casinos, prostitutes, and comedians. Yeah. And uh, strip clubs galore. It, venues in Miami Beach were open until 5 in the morning. Some didn't open until midnight, and that's where everybody <laughs> went after the other shows. And you'd go there and drink all night, and it would be strippers and comedians. And a lot of them were bad, and some of them were good. But you had a lot more freedom, because people were looking at tits and ass. They didn't care what you said. So this thing about getting busted was true, but if you paid off the authorities, you were fine. So you could go up on stage and and swear. It still wasn't like today. It wasn't like straight up uh, uh, saying, fuck, shit, cunt. Yeah. You could allude to it, or you could say you could say some of those words, you know, sparingly, and, and nothing bad would happen to you. So there was a lot of comedians in Miami Beach that were Lenny Bruce esque. I don't think they were quite as sophisticated in terms of their subject matter. They were still just doing kind of stupid body humor, but it was not. Uh, he was not the only one. It was very common to to be a strip club uh, uh, comic. Yeah. Right up actually through the '60s and '70s, Jay Leno got his start doing uh, Boston strip clubs. So it right up till then, it was not uncommon. Yeah, because there were no like real comedy clubs until like the '70s. Yeah, I mean, it's all a matter of uh, definition, and it was also just like a slow evolution. So like Bud Friedman likes to say he had the first comedy club with the Improv in New York in '63. But all of those shows still had singers on them. Right. Like Bette Midler was a waitress there and she would sing. So is it a comedy club if there's always a singer? Yeah. Maybe not yet, you know. And there was another place called Pips, which I talk about in the, in the, in the book. And that, was, that predated the improv? It predated yeah. the improv by one year. A lot of comedians of that improv generation can talk to you about Pips. Robert Klein, David Brenner, Richard Lewis, they can tell you everything about Pips. It too, though, had like a piano player and then a stand-up, and then a singer. Uh-huh. And then as comedy uh, got more popular than the other acts, by the late 60s, it's almost predominantly stand-up. And Rodney Dangerfield opened his club, Dangerfields, in New York in, like, I guess, 68 or 69. Same thing, singers and comedians. So how do you define a comedy club? Is it a place where it's mostly comedy, just uh-huh. comedy, just stand-up? I don't know. Uh, I wrote about a place for WFMU called Billy Gray's Bandbox, which was here... Uh, across from CBS Television City uh, uh, in the 50s, and it had like five comedians per show, which at the time was unheard of. It would still have like a dance team and an orchestra, but Buddy Hack would would play there, Jackie Green would play there, Joey Ross would play there, and the host, this guy Billy Gray, who owned it, was a comedian. Uh He's in the movie uh, Some Like It Hot. And so that could perhaps qualify as the first comedy club, and I argue that in my article but again, it still had singers in an orchestra, so maybe yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't really until the 70s where comedy clubs as we know them came to be a thing. Now, the Ice House, and I noticed this in the book, um, you, you, I think you called the Comedy Store the first yeah. actual yeah. just comedy yes. of four comedians featuring stand-up comedians comedy club in America. But I've, I've heard, and I don't know, I haven't done the research, I'm not... <laughs> Um, but I've heard the Ice House. Well, it's the same thing. The Ice House was a folk club and comedy club. So you had comedians and you had musicians. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that went on to work for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, like Steve Martin, started at the Ice House yeah. because it was heavy with folk singers. 
And a lot of the guys that wrote for the Smothers Brothers, the Smothers Brothers were folk singers turned comedians. Right. Steve Martin was a was a magician, banjo player, slash right. comedian. If you look at the other writers on that show, a guy named Hamilton Camp used to record for Electra Records as a folk artist. Mason Williams wrote the song Classical Gas, won a Grammy Award for Album of the Year the same year that he won an Emmy for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. It's all these folk musicians right. who were like writing comedy. And the Ice House was that. It was folk music and comedy. It wasn't just a stand-up. So they like eased into being a straight-up. Because I remember I've read uh, books on music history and they always mention the Ice House as like yeah. an old blues club. Like yeah. it has been there since, you know, whatever, the 30s or 40s. Yeah. As, as there different were three or sorts four places of around Los Angeles, uh, somewhere in Hollywood, somewhere in Pasadena, somewhere in Westwood. Uh-huh. There was a place called Ash Grove, which today is the improv on Melrose. It used to be in a folk club called the Ash Grove. Yeah. It's interesting that it became a comedy club because people like Fred Willard and Franklin Ajay and people like that had played it first when it was a folk club. The Troubadour, which is still there on Santa Monica Boulevard, yeah. same thing. Steve Martin recorded uh, his first HBO special there. Robert Klein and Albert Brooks recorded records there. Richard Pryor used to play it a lot, but it was still a music venue. Right. Uh, place, another place on Santa Monica Boulevard called PJ's, and then the Ice House in Pasadena. Oh, and a place called Leadbetters in Westwood, which became the second comedy store. They used to have a Westwood brand. Yeah, yeah. So they were all folk clubs, but they all had comedians. And mostly the reason they had comedians is because there was no comedy clubs. There was nowhere, nowhere else for a comedian to play but a music venue. Yeah, the only and I guess folk would be the closest. Because those supper clubs, Sinatra clubs, had died by the end of the 60s. Yeah. So I, met, I worked with David Steinberg once, and he was like, Yo, you're a comedian? I said, yeah. He goes, man, you really wish you'd been working when I started. He goes, we were treated like artists and poets because we would play folk clubs. Yeah. And it would be like... You'd follow some sleepy folk singer, and you were it was like you were the most dynamic thing they'd ever seen, and you were doing this new thing almost in a new way. He's like, We were treated like really something special. It's true. Could you imagine an era when David Steinberg was considered a hip guy? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> what a different time I mean, the, when I worked on him, there was a guy who, who was on the, the writing staff uh, who was part of a comedy team called The Funny Boys. And he, which was an '80s, uh, they were on, they were on did Tonight Show a bunch of times. And what one of them, Jim Valley and Jonathan Schmock. Valley went on to work. He's a pr- big producer. Oh, their headshots up at the comedy store. Yeah, Valley, and, uh, Valley and worked on Arrested Development. Schmock uh, directs TV and writes TV. And, and uh, I see that thing all the fucking time. Yeah, I got to pay Schmock, closer attention to it. Now. Schmock most famously <laughs> is the Mater D in Ferris Bueller's Day Off oh, great. for the the Abe yeah. Froman sausage scene. And, and uh, you know, he was on the staff and, and you know, the, David Simon was directing this episode. And I go, hey, David Simon, I heard that name. He goes, no, no, no. You don't. He goes, dude, you don't understand. He goes, Steinberg was the shit. He's like, this guy was Crazy. the fucking coolest. David Steinberg is interesting. Uh, he gets slammed in my book a little bit. I don't throw anybody under the bus in my book. But right. I do let a lot of my interview subjects throw people under the bus. Mm-hmm. And David Steinberg gets the short... <laughs> Short shaft, short short end of the stick. What's the phrase? You get shafted, or you get the you get the short end of the stick. You can also be short shifted. Earn your shift. Short shifted. Short short shifted. I have no idea what it means. I know it's a phrase. I've never heard that one. Well, after he earned his shaft, (laughs) uh, I'll accept that. (laughs) David Steinberg uh, uh, is Canadian. He's from Winnipeg. Okay. He's a very nice guy, right? He's a real yeah, super nice. Real sweet gentleman with his. 
a very sweet, dentured uh, smile. Right. Mm-hmm. In my book, he gets thrown on, under the bus by Carl uh, Gottlieb. Carl Gottlieb also wrote for the Smothers Brothers. There's a few guys who are like lost keys in the history of comedy and show business, even recently. And Carl Gottlieb is one of them. Carl Gottlieb worked in the East Village in the early 60s. He operated the lights for Fred Willard's comedy act when Fred Willard was a stand-up, mm-hmm. which nobody knows about in the early 60s. Yeah. In the late 60s, he was a member of the counterculture sketch troupe, The Committee. Then he became a writer for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, Carl Gottlieb. Then he wrote the screenplay in 1975 to Jaws. And then he wrote the screenplay in 1979 to the movie The Jerk. Oh, so the Jesus guy who wrote Christ. Jaws also wrote The Jerk, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> that is pretty shocking. <laughs> that is Anyways, so crazy. <laughs> Carl Gottlieb has not very good things to say about David Steinberg in my book because if you've ever seen the documentary about the Smothers Brothers show, it's called Smothered. They showed it at the Aspen Comedy Festival several years back when I was still doing stand-up. And it's an all right documentary, and it's about this famous story about how the Smothers Brothers fought with the CBS censors and they got canceled. Yeah. Ultimately, the legend is because... They were criticizing the Vietnam War. They were booking guests like Joan Baez and uh, Pete Seeger who were protesting the war. And it was kind of, even though it was really an old-fashioned, hokey sketch comedy show, American TV was so conservative in those days that any criticism of the, of the war or reference to marijuana or hippies, unless, it was like in a, unless they were criticizing hippies, it was really not allowed. So the Smothers Brothers kind of helped change that a little bit, inch by inch. And David Steinberg, in the documentary and elsewhere, claims that it was his appearances that got the show canceled because he would do these mock sermons that were sort of inspired by Lenny Bruce where he kind of made fun of Catholicism and the dogma of the church. And so in the documentary, they conclude that that's why the Smothers Brothers finally got canceled because they upset the Bible Belt. And Carl Gottlieb, who was there for the whole spiel and and wrote on the show, says, uh, David Steinberg is so full of shit. He likes to claim that it, he's the reason the Smothers Brothers got canceled. It's the most self-aggrandizing, self-important thing I've ever heard. And Carl Gottlieb's a soft-spoken guy. He's not like a guy who yeah. disses people. Yeah. Like, wow, this is like a, a totally new perspective that I had not uh, heard of. And then I interviewed this other guy who had produced the Smothers Brothers their first two seasons. Then the third season was the big controversial one. And that's the one that Steve Martin wrote on, Carl Gottlieb, David Steinberg. And the producer told me when they made that documentary, they talked about how controversial the third season was, and then they just showed clips from the first and second season. This like, uh, guy like produced. Wow. And he goes, "Yeah, we were always in trouble with uh, the Johnson administration, not even the Nixon administration." So a lot of history in there got distorted, I guess. But David Steinberg, apparently, uh, there's a show you can find on YouTube called Music Scene, uh-huh. and it's a music video show from '69 produced by the Smothers Brothers where they would get bands that were on the billboard charts like Janis Joplin, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Three Dog Night, and they would perform their hit song. And the show was hosted by Lily Tomlin, David Steinberg, and members of the committee. But apparently David Steinberg's manager was like a Helen Kushnick type, really pushy, Uh and got Lily Tomlin fired from the show so David Steinberg could be the star. And then when she got fired, George Schlatter hired her and she went on laughing and became the biggest star ever, you know. So David Steinberg seems like a very nice guy, but I could kind of see how he might be a little bit of a conniving. Uh, <laughs> right. I wonder. It seemed, in, in almost in the way you, you described the Rickles thing, there seemed to be so many back room situations like that. 
Wait, that I don't know are happening now. Maybe we just don't hear about them. But like, it was like, no, this guy decided they hated that person, so they worked to get him fired. Like, it seemed like there was much more backroom dealings and yeah, things like that. Yeah, well, it's that. interesting because a lot of the time, talented people become successful because they're talented. Right. But then there's all these other people who aren't. I'm not saying these people aren't talented. They are. But there's all these other people we see that aren't talented. They become really successful. And you're like, how did that happen? Well, usually it's like there's a backstage conspiracy we come up with. But sometimes those people that are talented become successful because there was also a backstage conspiracy. Right. Yeah. Ambition will really... Uh, 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 yeah, there's backstabbing and networking and <laughs> politics. There's all there's, all David that stuff Stein- goes into whether you're talented or not. David Steinberg, I think Carl Gottlieb phrased it, described him as a politician. Uh-huh. And some comedians, when I interview them, will describe other people as politicians. The one guy who gets, and I'm sure you guys will agree, who gets described to me as a politician rather than a comedian is Tom Driesen. There's another guy who's like I don't a know if I've Sinatra opening act. Comedy store guy from way back. Still yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I've, I've opened for him a couple times. I've never heard that about him. But you know what I mean? You're like, this guy, is, you, when you meet him, he's real nice. Hey, Cliff, how are you doing? Hey, yeah, oh, we are going to Chicago. Yeah, me and Jamie are opening a new club there. You know, he seems yeah. really nice. Yeah. But he also strikes me not as like a hilarious man, but more of a businessman. You know, with the fucking, uh, he's he's more about. He's just to me, he doesn't have the comic mind. There's some the people mind. that get into stand up because they go, they just they just say, I've picked this profession to make a lot of money. Yeah, it doesn't matter what it is. It just happened to be an art form, but they were like, I'm going to do that and make money. Yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying this about Dreesen, but there are people that just figure out the structure. And they're like, this is what you do, and then you just go at it really hard, and you go do it. Norm MacDonald argues that stand-up is not an art form for that reason. Yeah, he calls it a craft. Because you learn the technique, and then you can do it whether you're funny or not, which is true to a degree, but you can only get so far uh, uh, not being funny with your with the craft. So I think it is an art I mean, you can say that about a lot of... I mean, I mean you, you can say, yeah, that, you about can say guitar, that about the guitar... About painting, painting yeah. yeah. Well, no, but painting there is a craft. You can learn, I mean, not even paint by numbers. There's a million shortcuts or tricks, the things yeah. you learn to make you a better painter. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily reduce the. There's, I mean, one of my favorite books about artists by Robert Henri's is The Economy of Means Equals Dexterity of Will. What does that mean? That means, like, the more efficient your process gets, the more dexterous you can be with your will to create things oh yeah of course yeah, and so i mean i would argue that 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 mastering the craft actually can make you far better of yeah, an artist yeah, know the rules before you break i mean i see that now with right, bill yeah. burr where he's like he's his new material is just better than than new material usually is because yeah, so he's like level. It's yeah comfort and confidence it's yeah. amazing how much you can get away with with confidence when andy kindler used to do his bit about dane cook that was kind of the essence of his bit was that Dan Cook can say something with such confidence, <clears throat> he convinces you that you can relate to what he's saying. Don't you guys just, hey, you go to the beach and you're eating broccoli, you know, and you're at the beach eating broccoli, <laughs> yeah. and you're in the audience going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. yeah, false premises. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but I mean, that level of, of confidence, it's the, it's the classic uh, American hucksterism of being like a snake oil salesman. You say right, you have right. enough confidence, you're going to convince people. And stand-up, you can do that too. And we all do it, even when you're funny, you're saying the same thing you've said a thousand times before. You're still doing the old kind of, it's a bit of a... Yeah. I mean, I'll have situations where I'll have something in a bit that I need to use to pay off later. And I'll, I'll be like, you know when you're doing this? And it's like a thing people don't necessarily do, but I need it later on. So you just yell it, and then they buy it, and then you can use and it later And after a while, on. rhythm 
like will just get people laughing. Well, that's at, why when you do stand up for ten years plus, everything changes, and it even changes after you've been on stage five hundred times to a hundred times, right? A thousand times, and you can't explain it, and you can't explain it to anybody who hasn't done it. But it's that out of body experience where you're on stage, you're doing your material, you've already decided you're not doing the next bit, you're going to jump to the other bit. You're watching your friend Dan hit on a girl at the back of the room, and he promised to watch your act. You're mad at him. Right. And you, then you see some other guy in the corner you think is going to be trouble. Then you yeah. can audibly hear somebody talking too loud at the bar. There's all these things going on at the same time, and yet you're at this perfect level of comfort. And then when you do your 5,000th show, you're even more comfortable. It's this weird sort of uh, yeah. uh, energy that flows through the body. The more uh, experience you get, you naturally achieve more confidence on stage. And same thing as, as more often you get on stage. You know, If you've done 10 shows in a row, that 10th show is pretty easy. Where if you haven't done a show in, in 10 months, then yeah. the show is difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I almost think I, I I don't tend to necessarily think of it in my within my own act of of a increase in confidence is just a reduction of anxiety because I'm aware of more of the variables at this point. But that is confidence and experience. I just uh, to me it's like I I I think I feel it as less worry. Where like to me there's like a handful of different ki- types of crowds. I've seen almost all of them at this point, except well, for mean, the huge ones. The opposite of less worry though. Would be confident. I just more think like in my head, I'm like, uh, I'll know what to do. Where that doesn't necessarily. For God's sake, man, have some confidence. I know. It doesn't feel like con- no confidence to me is like <laughs> I'm gonna go fucking destroy. When it's in my head, it's like I'll know what to do if that happens, <laughs> as opposed to like this well, is gonna I'm, be amazing. I'm not talking about premeditated confidence. I'm talking about you take the stage, you hold that microphone, you take command. Yeah. Without even yeah, yeah. thinking about it. That's confidence. You're just not like there. some lofty arrogance you know? or whatever. You're just like, I'm gonna go up and do comedy. That'll probably go well. I guess. I guess to people that aren't comedians, that feels like confidence. But to me, all my most of my friends are comedians. We're all gonna go up on stage yeah. and tell those jokes. Well, that I just right, feels right. like normalcy. Well, it's funny, like the questions that uh, non-comedians will ask you, like, "Oh, would you ever get heckled? Don't you worry about it?" I'm like, why would I worry about it? I've dealt with it a million times. All I have to say is anything it's also so and rare it's like never a thing that you're thinking of yeah it's not a thing depending on the club if you know it's a rowdy room but you're never like driving to shows going fuck what if there's a heckler like it just doesn't no, come up after that's a while just a matter of experience and understanding you know? yeah it's, it's it's you're in control it's not difficult to uh, right right handle. how yeah. do you feel like when having done stand-up for like eight years which is a pretty good amount of time most people don't last three four yeah. five but how do you feel that informed your uh, the storytelling in the book once you got into like completely. I think the beginning it, of comedy? I informed it completely, you know, because like uh, most comedians, I was just a fan of comedy too, you know. And yeah. fortunately for me, this book is going to be read by comedians and people in the comedy community, which is great for publicity oh, yeah. because everybody has a podcast or else is a giant megaphone. So right. I got a beautiful uh, email yet, not to name drop, but I'm going to name drop. I got a beautiful uh, email <laughs> yesterday from Bob Odenkirk. Oh, cool. Telling me how much he loves the book, blah, blah, mm. blah. Steve Martin, uh, we sent an advanced copy to, and he also sent this beautiful email saying, I think it's an important document. I awesome. literally couldn't put it down. I mean, just incredibly generous, kind statements. But that's because they're in comedy you know mm-hmm. so this book appeals to them so when i was in comedy i read every book on comedy there was not right. not uh, instructional books but like comedy on the edge by richard zoglin and i'm dying up here by william notstetter and seriously funny by gerald nachman and the last laugh by phil berger those are the four books about stand-up that are okay uh but i would read those books and they would also drive me crazy 
because they were all written by kind of dull journalists. They're written by people that certainly aren't funny. And I'm not saying you have to be funny to write about comedy. But my God, does it ever help to have been able to do comedy to understand? Have comedy. a sense of the of yeah. the thing. Yeah. This story so will be better than that. You would read in these yeah. other books that just rang false. The one who's the worst is Bill Carter, the guy who wrote the Late Shift about the late night wars mm-hmm. between right. Conan and Letterman, and then he wrote another book called War, War for Tonight about the Conan Tonight Show thing. He also wrote a, a book in between the two that nobody read because it wasn't about the late night wars. <laughs> and then you could really see what a terrible writer this guy was because suddenly he didn't have interesting subject matter and it was the worst book ever. It was called Desperate Networks and it was about the rise of desperate housewives. Oh, boy. boy. What, a, what a compelling read that was. <laughs> decision to write that book. Wow. But, uh, huh. but Bill Card is the worst. He has no understanding of comedy. So he'll describe Letterman's act. He'll describe Leno's act. And he'll use phrases like funny unfunny, not funny, <laughs> barely funny. And I'm like, who the fuck are you? You're the one that's unfunny. Yeah. And you have the audacity to uh, uh, try and deconstruct an act in those subjective terms. You're, you don't get I, shit. When I read a review and they're like, it was a really unfunny joke, it, it makes my fucking, it makes me want to take a dump. It, it's, it's such a, yeah. it's such a simplify, it's, too, it's just the most, Overly simplified thing like unfunny to you, you shithead. Yeah, it's just opinion. But even then, it's like we sitting here, and this sounds pompous, but we know who's funny within like five minutes. We can go into the comedy store and watch some guy on stage we've never seen before bomb, but still know yeah. that he's funny. Yeah. And likewise, we can go to the comedy store and watch a guy kill doing a Bill Cosby impression and know that he's not funny. Yeah. Whereas the audience doesn't know that. All they know is that everybody's laughing, so this guy must be funny. Or nobody's laughing, so this guy must be unfunny. And right. a lot of these journalists who write about comedy make that same mistake, and I have no respect for them. So when I wrote my book, I feel that it resonates uh, with a great deal of the comedy community for that reason, because I don't approach it in those same uh, uh, terms. Yeah. I feel like there is an undercurrent of understanding in what I write. I know it sounds like the most pompous thing ever. But no, no, not at all. I really feel like there's an undercurrent about uh, stand-up when I write that is missing when a guy like Bill Carter or Richard Zoglin writes about the same thing. Yeah. My worry, not worry, but I was just like, I, I'd heard, I can't remember how I stumbled across it in the beginning and I was like, whoa, a book about the history of comedy. And when I read your backstory, I was like, oh, thank God this guy did comedy for a while. Like at least a little while. Yeah. Because if you were just some dude who was like, I'm going to tackle comedy and discuss stand-up, I would have been like, well, what's yeah. he going to know? What's he going to know? I don't even think eight years is that long to be doing stand-up. I think 10 years is really... Yeah, that's I, when you start. more yeah. annoying than meeting some dude who goes, oh, you do comedy? I'm a, I'm a comedian too. And you're like, you are? Who the fuck are you? And it's some guy who did an amateur night once right, six yeah. years ago. I'm like, don't fucking tell me you're a comedian too or that you used to have a stand-up act. My pet like, peeve is whenever I meet someone that's like, uh, what, what do you do? I'm a comedian. They're like, oh, my friend's a comic. He's a, he's a regular at the comedy store. I was like, oh, because there's like not very many of yeah, those. You know and the current ones are kind of all getting spots around the same time. So there's no way I'm not going to know who it is yeah. unless he's 75. <laughs> You're literally, there's no way we will not know who Right, right, right. And they go, uh, I go, oh, what's his name? And it'll be like Brad Johnson, just some regular random guy. Yeah. yeah. Always a Brad. And I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe he just does one of the yeah outside promoter shows or amateur. No, no, he said he was a regular there. And then I go, here's the thing, though. Um, <laughs> his name is Argus. <laughs> yeah. I go, unless he's like a really old guy. Or he's or he's lying to you, or he's just is saying 
But yeah. that always would get me. You can be like, is his name on the wall? Right, yeah, yeah. It's not. But they don't yeah. even know those details and they don't care. But it just I know it just bothers me more. So I just have to go like, yeah, but well, maybe we just haven't crossed paths. I was in the hallway at the store and this a guy came downstairs and I was I was talking. It was me, Ingram, and Delia were talking. And the guy wanted to get Delia to go upstairs and be on his show upstairs. Yeah. Right. And the one guy goes like, man, I just want to be able to say I performed with you. And I wanted to be like, why? What do you think that's going to get you? It's the same thing when you just be like, has performed at Comedy Store. Well, they'll add it, uh, they'll put it under, has opened for. They'd yeah. always fudge it to be like, I open. When I started doing stand up in Toronto, there was this amateur comic, one of these guys who was like an amateur his entire life, like never changes his act or gets any better and just hosts an open mic forever. This guy named Rasul Samji. And he was funny unintentionally because he would introduce everybody with the most loquacious introduction this guy just did letterman <laughs> just for laughs Kimmel, he's everything he's got, it was all bullshit every <laughs> yeah. that's great <laughs> he just got a giant check from showbiz yeah. give it up for him <laughs> right but yeah i mean uh, the fact that you did do it for a little bit it it I'll, i felt I it I'll, in reading the I book will say this much i did stand up longer than Judd Apatow and longer yeah. than Dick Cavett. We right. always talk about their stand-up careers. So. And Albert Brooks, I think. How long did oh, Steve yeah. Martin do yeah. it? Uh, good question. I think uh, Steve Martin did it almost 10. He actually started way... Well, no, he did it for 10 because he started and did it for so long before anybody knew him. Right. He clicked in 77, but he started, I think, in 68. Okay. 69, doing those folk clubs. Right, yeah. In fact, I just posted a thing. I tweeted it yesterday. A... Uh, appearance steve martin made on a campus radio show in nashville in 1973 after his stand-up gig at the college there and it's him like taking calls like, wow at them. this point with all that what do you do you still find all that stuff or at this point are people sending these both, things to you both when i did marion's podcast the first time it was a great thing for me and it was interesting i talked to other like comedians or people at my obscure uh, level you know and I said, oh, I did Marin's podcast. All these great things happened for me. I got this agent. I had this offer from here and blah, blah, blah. And everybody else was like, really? Because I did it and nothing happened. I was like, oh, well, I guess I was really lucky. And one of the things that uh, I lucked out on was all these sort of old comedy fans in the, in the, in the shadows, in the closets from all over the place started mailing me things. Yeah. And, oh, wow. Uh, this collector in Miami. Cool. Oh, my God. He sent me a disc with like, 30 Albert Brooks radio appearances from the 80s. Wow. Larry King's radio show and Tom Snyder's show where he's just improvising so it was all lost to the ether. Yeah. He sent me that. Somebody sent me a copy of, uh, it's in the book, that last performance that Albert Brooks's father did before he died. Right. Uh, Albert Brooks's dad was a comedian in the 30s on radio and he became very ill in the late 40s. He had a spinal injury so he couldn't really perform anymore. So he mostly did his performances at Friars Club roasts because he could sit down for the whole hour on the dais and then lean on the podium when he did his, his <laughs> so in 58 he was booked to do a roast of lucille ball and desi arnaz at the beverly hilton it was a fundraiser for a burmese leper colony which i guess was a big big deal money apparently for and he went up and he followed uh, dean martin and, Mil and george burns went up on stage brought down the house killed in front of a thousand people uh, albert brooks's father harry einstein was his name then he went, sat down on the dais next to Milton Berle and dropped dead. Wow. Face first into his food in front of everybody. So that's in the book. Well, I did Marion's podcast. This guy sends me a recording of the whole show. Whoa. That's insane. Yeah. yeah. Did he kill as hard as you say? Yeah, he destroys. Wow. And to be fair, 
uh, or maybe to be unfair, he did have the best spot on the show. He was on <laughs> fifth. Right. George Burns killed uh, number four right before him. And I've heard him, I had heard a recording of Harry Einstein do the same shtick more or less and not kill as hard. But it was just one of those nights where you just yeah. you know, could do no wrong. And he really? just destroyed. You can hear silverware rattling on the tables as people are pounding their fists against the table, you know. And they make him take another bow. And then the host, Art Linkletter, says, how come we don't see him on TV anymore? We, he's got to have another show. And everybody applauds. But by that point, he had already... Uh, oh, my God. He literally himself. died doing what he loved. That's insanity. That's Killed so crazy. I mean that's the that's the reason I'm of uh, I know Kip Adada he did Drew Carey's roast like when, when oh, they yeah. still did him with the Friars clubs and he fucking murdered yeah, and I just was like and I w- I think I was either just starting or about to start and I was like who the hell is that yeah. and I just remember that name Kip Adada and then one night I was hosting the potluck and oh no I was go- about to go up and and. I they say my name and the, a per, an older man next to me starts to go on stage because he's he gets he thinks he said his name. My both our names start with a K sound, and it's like oh you and I and I go up and then I go no it's me Kevin Chris and I look over and I go I go what's your name and he goes Kip and I go are you Kip Adada and he goes ah yeah yeah yeah, yeah Kip Adada and I go and I I basically it was a really bad night at the store anyways I go you pieces of shit here need to fuck I go this guy's fucking great and like there was a host I go I'm bringing you up. I go, when I'm done, I'm bringing up. I go, this next guy's hilarious. This guy's fucking funny. Everyone needs to watch him. He's great. And, like, he did totally well. But, like, just that one set at that roast, he fucking destroyed that Have roast. Have you ever seen the roast episode of the Larry Sanders show? No, I've heard about because it. Because there's that's a plot point in it. They're supposed to get Bill Cosby, and then they can't, so they get Kip a daughter. Yeah. <laughs> Rip, 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 uh, uh, and Larry, Larry Sanders goes, oh, what about Cosby? Is he coming? And uh, Rip Torn has already goes, no, but we've got an... A, an excellent replacement. Who? Kip Adotta. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, Kip Adotta? Who the fuck is Kip Adotta? Even a- after I saw that roast, he lived, my ex-wife lived in a, a house like right by Cafe 101 and Kip Adotta lived in the house behind him. Behind them. And she lived like three chicks and then she she met him one day and he was like, oh, you do because I'm a comedian. He goes, ha <laughs> You should fucking give that up. Like, you basically, like, don't. Jeez. This is the thing that, like, somebody who's from, like, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, goes back home and brags about. I lived in an apartment behind Kip Adotta. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really? Yeah. But, like, one say. set, I'll never forget, you know, like, one, seeing one set by him. I have no idea what the actual trajectory of his career was. What I don't know how great he was or not. But I'm like, no, no, no. That guy's funny. Yeah. 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 Well, you you can just tell, you know. Like, well, that it's interesting because I did a show Saturday with every. I only knew one comedian in the lineup. Everyone was a bunch of comedians I'd never met or heard of. I don't know how. What show? It was at the West Side. Oh, okay. It was like a benefit show, and right. there was one comedian on there who he did very well, and I was like, that person's not funny. He was doing well the entire time. It was. It felt by rote. It felt like he had a book about like how to write an act about yourself. It was all like I'm I'm this and my parents it was yeah. I was just like this guy's I'm doing well. I'm half German and half Chinese. That means Yeah, blah, it blah, wasn't blah, blah. Yeah, that yeah. bad, but I wanted to go I wanted to be like guys, don't be fooled by this. Like it was <laughs> it was just too and he was he was yeah. very optimistic. It was it checked like every box in modern comedy. Like I hate misogyny. Doesn't it bother you? Racism bothers me like this. I love my girlfriend. So it was like the perfect portrait of like the modern He probably just graduated from like a learning annex class that's taught by uh, Tom Dreeben. 
and I, I watched it with such fascination because he was doing quite well. And I was like, this guy, I go, he's literally not funny, but he's doing very well. I hadn't seen anything like it in a long time. I don't know. Stand up often makes me very angry when I go and see it live, which is never. But like I did a show in January for the Riot Festival downtown. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. after my show, I did an afternoon show with Fred Willard and then had a pass for the festival. So I went from this tent to this theater and watched a bunch of stuff. And like, I don't know if it's because I'm jaded or, or what, but like within minutes, I was like in the parking lot doing an impression of everything I had seen, which was just Cosby, Tinder, Uber, Cosby, Tinder, Uber. Like within five minutes, I knew exactly what all the hack topics were of sure, this yeah. year, even though I've been out of the game for like uh, seven years. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, it reminded me of that trip to New York where everybody was doing the Monica Lewinsky thing. Yeah. So it's just like. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, every era, I mean, every year of comedy has those comics. I remember Rogan doing that where he's like, if you, he goes, here's how you can get people to laugh. And it was like, funny accent equals humping the chair. And he's like, here's my impression of Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, being, ha- someone raping him. And he just did it in the and audience. He's like, laughs. here's my impression of Maria Shriver sticking a cucumber up yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger's ass. And he'd bend over, do the impression, oh, it hurts, it hurts. And it would destroy. And he goes, he goes, okay, now that you guys are all on board. And then he would get into like how the pyramids were built. Or like yeah, crazy he, I remember him one night going, stuff. he did it. And he goes, no, don't laugh at that. He's like, you're being tricked. Yeah. He was like, don't. He's like, stop it. Because you just go and make the. I mean, he's such an interesting guy because his audience, his demographics are like diametrically opposed. They're fascinating. Yeah, and I find him really interesting. I got a lot of respect. Remember for Ari put up a sign after Schwarzenegger got caught the adultery thing. Ari was hosting, and he put a sign at the entrance that said "No Schwarzenegger Impressions." Yeah. Like for the, he's like, I know it's in the news again, but this doesn't mean you can bring it back. What do you guys uh, think about this? This I always wonder. Uh, so none of us uh, accept the idea of stealing jokes. Yet, when people go up and do the same impressions or do an impression, somebody else's impression, right. people never call them on it. And I think they should. And I used to have this feud with this impressionist in Vancouver who did a Schwarzenegger, a Cosby, and another one. Right. Those, you know? mm-hmm. And the guy had like strong uh, larynx. Like He could actually do voices. And occasionally right. he would do an impression of like one of the regional comedians, and it was good. But on stage, he only ever did these hack impressions. And I was really mean to him, and he was considered a nice guy, and everybody liked him. But I hated him because I felt that he was like an insult to comedy. I was like, if you have the ability to manipulate your throat to do voices, why would you choose to do those voices? Right. And even still, you're not doing an impression of Bill Cosby or Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're doing an impression of impressions you've heard people do. Right, yeah. Because every Bill Cosby impression now sounds the same. I had a comedy record, or did, from 1970. Called, it was really obscure. It was called A Pause in the Disaster. It was like some sketch group. And That's a great a name. And Cosby impression, yeah. which sounds nothing like every Cosby impression, but sounds just like Bill Cosby. Right. right. And it was so interesting to me because um, the guy comes on, he has almost, not a Pee Wee Herman voice, but the voice is like, a lot of people run around playing football. Run, 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 run. You know, a lot of football is a good game. You know, if I'm going to find it over to Fat Henry. Fat Henry, over to me. Fat Henry, run, run, run. And it sounded just like Bill Cosby, but nothing like the... Yeah, the zizzle, zazzle. So, you know, everybody's just... Kevin Spacey is doing late night talk shows now and he's doing Jack Nicholson impressions and Al Pacino. Well, it's like everyone did Rich Little's Reagan. Everyone did Dana Carvey's Bush. It's that... You know, so why is that acceptable? My pro- my bigger problem isn't so much those. My, I've always had a problem with when comedians do impressions of com- of other comedians, because then it was always like I used to always see guys do like a Bernie Mac would say it like this, and I'm like you're 
you're just doing his act. His act. Not necessarily they wouldn't do the same joke, but you're stealing almost everything about the guy. Well, in my book, I read a little bit about, I don't think I use this phrase, but there is a fine line between influence and stealing, yeah. especially when you're starting out. When I was doing stand-up in 98, 99, all the comedians sounded like uh, Norm MacDonald or Mitch Hedberg. And they weren't doing their material, but they would get laughs with that cadence. Yeah. And they would go up there sounding like, sounding like Mitch and go, oh, I, I had a hard day today. Uh, you know, they yeah. that sort of, I can't do Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> they were doing that, that voice. And same with Norm MacDonald. Hey, yeah, oh, that's a weird thing, huh? Yeah. Everybody was doing that, and they were getting laughs from it. And then the ones of them that were funny, you'd see them two, three years later, they didn't sound like that anymore. They'd yeah. come into their own. They'd shed their Sure, influence. yeah. But they were kind of stealing their hero's voice. Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor is very close, especially when he's... When he's young. When he's Even young. Pryor, Cosby, right? Yeah. I mean, and I, I mean, until I saw a lot of Eddie Murphy, you didn't realize how many people borrow from him. Yeah. But yeah, there. I don't. I don't. I. There, I must have been borrowing from. I. I took a lot from. Uh, early on, I think I. I. I kind of, copped Eddie Izzard a little bit, just like there was a way he delivered things, and I. And and, like uh, maybe a cadence and Ellen DeGeneres a little, just because I watched their specials a ton. Right. I, in the beginning and and dressed to kill, I think it was called. I watched those tons. Of, oh, and and Chappelle killing them softly, so like every once in a while. I'd on stage. I'd be like, I'm just talking, like <laughs> fucking Chappelle, or just say like, I'd be like, man, like that, just like a little thing like that, like an aside or a filler that I just heard in my head, and I was like, that's what comedy huh. sounds like. I feel like nowadays that's sh- you, you just would see that more in younger comics because they just are so eager to put their stuff up online. Or I think the the, the distinguishing thing generally is that. If you're already funny to begin with, you will shed that influence. And yeah, to sure. Yeah. If you're not funny, you're going to be ripping off that person forever. Yeah. And yeah, you have no comedic identity at all. Like if you're the businessman or the politician who gets into comedy, you're you're looking for what's going to best fit me, what's best suited for success, yeah. and then you pick it, and then you just like wear that suit, and then that's your yeah. voice as a when I, comedian. When I was in art school. I, for a while, drew exactly like this uh, comic artist named Chris Ware. Yeah, of course. Because uh, l- his line quality was like the best thing I'd ever seen. And so for a while, a lot of my work, student work looked like Chris Ware. And what I was doing was using his style to basically learn line quality and like kind of learn control. Like, I was like, I want that kind of control. And same with Barry McGee. I borrowed a lot from Barry McGee. And, but eventually, I worked out of it. And I had a teacher that was like, if you like Barry McGee's line quality... You don't have to borrow his, just come up with your own. You just like line quality. But it took me a semester of looking like Chris Ware and Barry McGee to like work through it. When when I go to uh, uh, the occasional art show at Meltdown, I am astounded, and I noticed this like within a year or two of his popularity, but I'm astounded now because there's a whole generation of adults now that exist that were weaned on him. How everybody's art looks like a version of John Chris Felucci's uh, design, you know, like the Ren and Stimpy kind of oh, yeah. style of animation. Yeah. And after Ren and Stimpy was a big hit, then there were all these sort of shows sort of like that, but not as good, you know, like uh, Rocco's Modern Life and yeah. Cow and Chicken. And then SpongeBob was by far the most successful show to kind of follow in that oblong uh, uh, style of design. But I see it all everywhere. And I guess in one way it must be flattering to the artist, but in another way it seems like 
you would be infuriated. I think it would get annoying. But also that style, he develop, developing it was probably incredibly difficult, but ripping it off is actually quite simple. And it's an easy style to draw in. And that artists are, have a tendency to be quite lazy. And you a lot of times gravitate towards something you can draw quickly and is considered good. So you can do it a lot and get a lot of attention. Right. That's oh, why so many people ripped show. off. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people ripped off Barry McGee and this other artist Cause because they were simple. Now it took them years to simplify their work into yeah. something that efficient. Same with Jeff McFetridge. People when people boil it down the way Mitch Hedberg did and got it simplified, or even Dimitri. When I first started, there was a lot of people doing what Dimitri Martinish stuff. And it's because they had boiled it down for them. And it was like, oh, there it is. It's like when someone ma- finds an impression. Every, like when that kid, de- that kid on SNL, when, his, when he kind of started doing his Denzel Washington, you saw a lot of Denzel Washington's that point out. That happens, Because yeah. they're like, oh, yeah. there it is. It, it's that stutter. We didn't see that and stutter. And that's the crux Christ- of your... Christopher Walken's first movie was in 1970. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there was no Christopher Walken impression until right. 1993. So that's yeah. basically the, the crux of your argument is that someone did the work and there's original material in there, but it just happens to be... Well, it's it's not that it's impression. Literally, literally, everybody is doing an impression of that first person's impression. Right. Yeah. You know, Christopher Walken doesn't actually sound like that. Bill Cosby doesn't actually sound like that. Uh, when Daryl Hammond tried to do an impression of, oh God, I can't remember who he was doing an impression of now. In the '90s, he was doing an impression of some politician that was too accurate. It was so accurate it didn't sound like an impression. Like it didn't sound no, funny. There was no exaggeration to it, so there was yeah. nothing yeah. to laugh at. He had a so lot of those. He, he was, was so good. And you wouldn't laugh at it, but he had studied the voice, so that he got the nuances, but they just weren't exaggerated. So it didn't. His Dreyfus, I love, and his Dreyfus was like that. Where at first I, I didn't even register who it was, and I was like, oh shit, that is a wonderful Richard Dreyfus. It's scary how accurate that dude's impressions are. If you go back to when uh, Obama uh, got elected, I think just pre-inauguration, they interviewed a lot of comedians, a lot of hack comedy journalists like Bill Carter types Mm -hmm. were saying, well, this is the end of political comedy. How is The Daily Show going to survive without George Bush? You got nothing to uh, make fun of. And And the comedians would say, oh, yeah, he's a tough guy to make fun of. There's nothing to make fun of there. And they even said the same thing about impressions. You can't do an, Apo- an Obama impression because there's nothing to exaggerate. And then one guy does an Obama impression. Yeah. Everybody can do an Obama impression. Yeah. Now yeah. everyone's got that same exact one. That same stilted. Yeah. Uh, uh, the stutter. Yeah. We're going to talk slow and then talk fast. Yeah. Yeah. When someone someone unlocks someone, it's the most satisfying thing to me. Because I can't do it. I can't do yeah. impressions. Well, you I, go, oh, yeah, I never like, thought about it dude, that it way. It was right there yeah. the whole time. Yeah. I, but love, it, I love doing impressions. I never did them in my act, and I don't do them of celebrities, but I love doing them of my friends and people I know. or co-workers. That's, yeah, that's one of fun. the best things about the comedy store is people start impersonating each other. Yeah, yeah, that's always fun. And yeah, like Jeff really Richards is. has a Jason Galern that is just the most satisfying. Now, that means nothing, nothing to anyone, that, yeah. but when you're around it, you're laughing so hard at Jeff Richards doing an impression of Jason Galern. It's so great. Because he gets all the details that everyone knows because we're all friends. Right. And you just see specific scenarios that like literally happen at that club. And you're just like, you're in tears. Yeah. Yeah. Richards is also a very talented impressionist too. He does like, he does a great Spacey. He does a Robert Downey Jr. Like he does, he does kind of odd ones. His Robert Downey Jr. was one that I was like, oh it's shit. It's great. He unlocked it almost made, it like yeah. shaved off a little bit of respect for Robert Downey Jr. You're like, oh, you do do that fucking thing. A good way to uh, uh, develop impressions is, uh, is 
listening to podcasts, I was always able to do impressions of things I heard. I was very good at cartoon voices because you're paying more attention to like the nuance of the voice. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. when you're watching a person and listening to them, you're not focusing on the voice and it becomes more difficult to impersonate, believe it or not. Yeah. But if you're listening to like a Bill Burr's podcast on a regular basis, then it becomes easier to impersonate. Right. Burr, you know? I had to audition to be Dick Cavett once and because I had to watch him and it took me fuck, and I didn't even like get a good version of it. But it was really hard because I was trying to do his face and voice at the same time. Right. And it was just like, I was, I was like, hey, we're fucked here. This is not my job. I'm not getting this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, was, it was a tough impression too. So yeah. in covering like a hundred, I mean a hundred years of comedy, that's insane. Well, uh, the, the original book that I pitched was just supposed to be about comedians and the mafia. Because I think it's the most interesting and the most marketable. That's going to be my next question. What was your f- most interesting? What was your uh, favorite part? And I had written about that in the past for WFMU, and it got yeah. by far the best response. And I think that's ultimately why Mark Marin had me on his show that first time, because it was uh, one of the mob stories that resonated. But I also was thinking commercially, because there's never a generation that doesn't cash in on some m- mafia bullshit, you know? Whether of course, yeah. Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson in the 30s and 40s or The Untouchables in the 50s or The Godfather or Scorsese or The Sopranos or Boardwalk Empire. Right. Every single generation, yeah. there's mob stuff. So uh, I was kind of looking at it from a marketing standpoint. I could turn this book into something. But then my agent came back and said, uh, Grove Press is interested in, in the proposal, but they'd like you to write a bigger book that goes back further into history and comes more current I know that's not the book you pitched, but they're offering twice as much time and twice as much money. Would you be interested in that? And I said, well, if anybody's going to write that, I would like to write it because yeah. I don't want Bill Carter to write it. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, so, is there, is yeah. there a certain My aspect? mortal enemy, Bill Carter. <laughs> yeah. Is there a certain aspect where you're like, well, I don't want these dickheads to do this, so I might as well try my best. That is exactly yeah. Yeah. my impetus for it. Plus, they did offer a pretty good deal, so... Uh, so I did not uh, pitch 100 years of comedy. Mm-hmm. And 100 years is just arbitrary. You know? right. there, there's, there's no start year. It's a nice round book, number. You know? yeah, but 1915 yeah. to 2015, more or less. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but of course, we were very uh, uh, exact, exacting in not including the years on the cover so that the book wouldn't be dated immediately. Right, yeah. you know? But uh, I don't remember your question. Uh, the question i don't even think i got to it but i said uh you wrote about a hundred years of of comedy i guess a couple of questions one did the book seem like just about right in length or could you have gotten into even more detail i think it's the right length i mean there's lots that was cut out yeah i probably could have written the exact same book using completely different stories and characters actually Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I have a, like a file of like 800 pages of just random s- facts and stories and interviews and not interviews, but just like quotes and stuff that I uh, came across that could have easily been in there. Yeah. But my editor wa- really went in there with a cleaver and, and thankfully so. And so what you had turned in was like a couple hundred pages longer, you would well, say? Well, I would turn stuff in over the writing process over the course of three years. Every few mm. months we would check in. And the first notes I ever got back were, uh, Cliff, this is horrible. <laughs> this is shit. This is, I don't know how you're going to turn this into a book. I oh, like, man. But I know how I write. And the first half is always just shit, just on the page. And I know nobody has to see it, so it doesn't matter. So yeah. it's like gives me an artistic freedom to not worry if it's bad because nobody can see it but me. But in this circumstance, the editor could also see it. And I had not worked with him before. And he was like, I don't know. Like, this is just a mess. And I was like, well, it's just... Have some confidence. Yeah, for God's sake. <laughs> it'll get there. <laughs> we'll figure it out together. Here, 
but yeah, I had this huge file of uh, of uh, excess material and still do that I could uh, shadow history. Yeah, I, I could, yeah. Uh, if I wanted. I to. mean, this is a, it seems to be the kind of thing where you do like addendums to them. You know, after after like ten years later, you do like an update or something like I that. I will have to do that, I think, because. It, for the no, uh, for the no, soft cover or whatever. This is a weird thing to admit, but like nobody will challenge me on, and, and nor should they, on, <laughs> on the stuff I've written in the teens, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. Yeah, because who fucking knows but that much? Who people, knows more than you but about people that? People like the Argus Hamiltons of the world will say that thing you wrote about that happened in nineteen eighty three. That's not how it happened. Yeah, there were a lot of people. They're still alive. Yeah, a lot of those. So I've already heard still alive. from that a little bit. I yeah. gave a free copy of my book to uh, this comedy writer. And he wrote back and he goes, I know you weren't asking for notes, but, and then there's like this list of notes, <laughs> like corrections. And most of his corrections actually were wrong. They were uh, axioms that are strongly held in the comedy community that I was. What's an example? Uh, that the original 2000 year old man was performed by Carl Reiner and Mel Tolkien. Mel Tolkien was a writer on your show of shows with Mel Brooks, with Carl Reiner. And the very first performance was at a, uh, a book party for Moss Hart, who wrote his book. Uh, memoirs called Act One, and it was at Mama Leone's restaurant. And uh-huh. Kenneth Tynan wrote about it, having been there. Um, and so I write how Mel Tolkien and Carl Reiner performed it. Mel Brooks never made it to that party, but the second time they performed it, it was with Mel Brooks. And so this guy r- wrote back, and he goes, "I'm pretty sure you meant Mel Brooks, not Mel Tolkien." And I was like, "No, I meant Mel Tolkien, because it's a, but everybody assumes that it's Mel Brooks. You know, just little things like that." Right. <clears throat> but then there was other stuff. Uh, comedy boom comedians from the '80s who were uh, dispelling the the idea that it was uh, cocaine fueled in the eighties, and I he- did hear that from a lot of comedians, from Gary Mule Deer to uh, Paul Provenza to Dana Gould, who were you know really saying the whole thing was fueled by cocaine. The whole decade. Marin used to say that too about the yeah. store. But then other guys I talked to, they said I did all the eighties. I rarely saw cocaine. You know, I think you really exaggerated it. So there'll be differences of of, of opinion in the new stuff. But at the same time, I think if there's like a paperback edition, I would like to uh, right. include some of those dissenting uh, views and opinions. I tried to be bad. That'd be pretty interesting to read, to be honest with you. Yeah. But it, I mean, again, it's such a, it's interesting because I, I think none of the people around them thought there would be a book. They're like, no one's going to keep, or maybe they did like, but you, when it's happening, you're like, should we pay attention to what's happening now? Are we in the midst of a boom? Should we like, is this going to be historic? And they were just like living their life. So but it's. that's the true of any. Uh, artistic movement and it seems weird yeah. to call the comedy boom an artistic movement but nobody's aware of the Harlem Renaissance till 30 years later when somebody writes about the Harlem Renaissance yeah people aren't going to yeah. everyone's just going to work and doing Isn't this a great renaissance <laughs> yeah hey right I had a teacher that worked on Star Wars and he's like we all thought it was really dumb yeah it's like it seemed dumb to us well when Star Wars came out 20th Century Fox put all their publicity behind Damnation Alley which was the summer's other big blockbuster <laughs> Uh, that Fox put out. The budget was way bigger. It also had special effects, and it's about this family that treks across the desert in this giant futuristic Winnebago, this 70s wood-paneled... Have you ever seen Damnation Alley? No. Oh, you got to see it. Oh, my God. It's it's (laughs) camp classic. But it's it's the movie that they put all the money into, and I've always wanted to do, like, a short, like, uh, SNL commercial or, like, YouTube short film that's all the Damnation Alley merchandise that you put in. <laughs> Damnation right. Alley, like curtains and bed sheets and sleeping bags and <laughs> yeah. action figures. Which Coffee mug, cereal bowl. Wow. But yeah, I, I mean, you would run into a lot of uh, a lot of conflict with the later. Because even I had that question that was like, I thought the Ice House was the first comedy club. 
And that's just because I've heard it from older people. I, there's a sign at their club that goes since this year. So in your head, you go, that's the first one. Well, and then I when stand people by ask. everything in the book. There's nothing in there that is uh, wrong. There is lots in there that is opinion, and all mm. that opinion is other people's words. I don't have any of my opinions in there. You could argue, if you're reading between the lines, you can sort of see where my opinions are in there, but there's no explicit yeah. opinion. So right. like when you go through the late 60s chapter, there's like four pages just glowing comments from George Carlin and Tommy Chong and Chris Rush and the Firesign Theater about how important LSD was to their comic viewpoint. And there's no page in there somebody saying how terrible LSD was. So there's no editorial in there for me saying that LSD is like a valuable tool or important. But if you're reading between the lines, you could maybe see where my editorial viewpoint is. Sure, you know? right. Um, but I was very careful not to editorialize because frankly, there's lots of people that are very important in comedy history who I personally don't find funny uh-huh. or they don't make me laugh, but I'm not going to keep them out of the book because I personally am not a fan of Milton Berle. I don't right. really like Milton Berle, but he's all over the book. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's uh, substantially important and more to the point influential. That's really how I decided who to include for sure was the influence. So Eddie Murphy is unspeakably influential, especially to black comedians. When the, Comedy boom, as we call it, of the 80s imploded. In the 90s, there was a black comedy boom. And it's a little bit uh, uh, ethnocentric of us to call one the comedy boom and, and the other a black comedy boom. But that's, in the 90s, there was a black comedy boom with Fox TV, with Def Jam, yeah, right. with In Living Color, with God Forbid, uh, uh, Comic View. But all of those shows created a huge boom of clubs and, and, and talent. That, uh, that continues to this day uh, uh, with another generation. So influence is, is really how I chose to include people or not include people. And Eddie Murphy, you know, the influence. Lorne Michaels is really the only Canadian in the book that gets profiled. I had to make arbitrary decisions. This person's Canadian. No this Jim Carrey? UK. He's not in there. He's not in there. Huh. He didn't do stand-up long enough. I, I, I've, the or thing make I, a mark the thing at I, least. The, my, one of my main importances of... of Jim Carrey is, I think, Ace Ventura changed sitcom acting delivery timing for at least ten years afterwards, and commercial acting too. That the hyper confident guy, the like the, the the basically cartoonishly confident, and the the it sounds so small, but the all righty then delivery was then that that still you see that that timing and that people style. say that now without even doing the character, yeah. they just go all righty then. I think like they just yeah, say it that, as a casual, yeah. He he. What he did in Ace for the first Ace Ventura, I think, changed changed timing a little. He's uh, he's definitely one of the impetuses for me getting into uh, stand up. Yeah, I would see Jim Carrey and do like uh, Jim Carrey shtick and realize well I can do. Well, it was also a way you could you right. had to pretend to be so confident. It like was half the battle of just opening your mouth. He the, he was never funnier than on In Living Color. He was so brilliant on In Living yeah. Color, and then about. Two years after he left the show and became a big star, maybe a little bit later, SNL was having one of its worst all-time seasons and had had like nine consecutive horrific train wreck episodes. And then they had Jim Carrey host. And it was one of the greatest episodes of SNL because yeah. here was this guy who knew sketch comedy acting inside and out on In Living yeah. Color. And he, brought, he came back. It was after In Living Color had left the air or he had left it. And it was fantastic. Yeah. And he elevated everybody around him. He carried, oh, yeah. 
Jim Carrey carried these like twelve fifty two a.m. sketches that normally would have been. Uh, yeah, people are asleep. Away. He's yeah. a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant performer. Like I'm, I'm. It's to this day I still have a, just a colossal amount of respect for that guy. Yeah, there, he was. There was a book on the history of Canadian comedy when I was a boy, like ninety seven, ninety eight, and uh, there's a great photo in there. It's like a Yuck Yucks hockey team photo, or you know how like the comedy store basketball. Yeah, team yeah, photo, yeah. Sort of like that. Right. And in that photo, in hockey jerseys, it's Jim Carrey, Norm Macdonald. Howie Mandel. Wow. Uh, this guy, Mike McDonald, who was huge in, in the 80s here and in Canada. Now he's only really known in Canada. He was the biggest stand-up in Canada ever, period, still to this day. Mike McDonald. Wow. Um, no relation to Norm? No relation to Norm and no relation to another Mike McDonald stand-up from Boston. And it, it's That's funny. the guy who was on Mad TV, that, that Mike McDonald, right? The American one? There was a Mike, yeah, there was a Michael McDonald on Mad TV, tall guy, dark hair. Yeah. I don't he was a groundling. I don't know if you, yeah, probably. If you talk to guys from the '80s, and you mention Mike McDonald, they go, "Wait, wait, Canadian Mike McDonald or American Mike?" McDonald? <laughs> they all know yeah. the two Mike McDonalds, and they, their nicknames were American Mike McDonald and Canadian. That's really yeah. funny. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I got enormous uh, respect for Jim Carrey. But he's not in the book. Norm uh, gave me a blurb for the book, but he's not really in it either i had to just kind of figure out who to cut out because yeah. i didn't include everybody but when you're doing a uh, hundred years it's tough yeah but i you know that's the thing is i never i didn't notice that i didn't go like well what the fuck why isn't this person here because there was so much new information yeah. which i found amazing where i was like because if you're a fan of comedy you're going to pick up that book you're going to know some of the stories about right. some of these people but it was the other stuff the stuff that informed helped shape my my knowledge of different eras of comedy that I was just never, it was a, not even alive and B you've just heard little bits and pieces, the Lenny Bruce thing, the strip club stuff, the first comedy clubs, how everyone kind of preferred the mob stuff. It was almost just like, yeah, I mean, fine. Less about Eddie Murphy, less about Jim Carrey. Cause there's, there's new information that up until now has just been kind of like, you know, campfire stories basically. Well, thank you. Yeah. That was kind of, Really, one of my points, too, was not to repeat the same stories yeah. and to reveal all the, the fresh stories because the fresh stories are great stories. They just yeah. people don't know them or they haven't been told accurately. And a lot of those books on comedy tell the same stories. Like the comedy store strike is made to seem like it was the most important thing that ever happened in the history of modern standards. <laughs> right. And I don't understand, and it's in my book too, but it's only in my book for like a page. Right. You, know, you can really tell the story in one page. You can't. Um, so I don't really think it was as, as important as people say. And then there's other old-timey axioms. You always hear about Jack Benny having the longest laugh ever when he did this uh, bit where... Uh, a uh, robber or mugger comes up to him, puts a gun in his back of his uh, back. And Jack Benny's character was of a penurious penny pincher, and everybody knew that for decades. So this mm. robber puts a gun in his back and says, hey, bub, your money or your life. And then there's this long pause, and the audience starts to laugh because they know what's going through the character's head is he doesn't right. want to part with a nickel. And he goes, I said, hey, bub, your money or your life. And then he goes, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Yeah. And it gets this huge laugh. Well, it's written about in like a hundred books about comedy. The longest laugh of all time. Jack Benny just gets repeated and repeated and repeated. And I would always read this anecdote and I'd be like, one, who cares? <laughs> Two, how do you even calculate a thing like that? Does that mean he's the funniest? Yeah. And then I would listen to that bit, you know, on old radio tapes, you know. It's just a normal laugh. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like anything else. Here I'm expecting the tape to just be laughter for a half an hour. And yeah. It's just like a 
right. any other joke. And I was like, but it keeps getting repeated. Somebody reads this book and then writes what they read in that book as the yeah. next uh, level of fact. And so yeah, it becomes the, the stuff source. of legend. The longest yeah. laugh I can think of is the Carol Burnett show, uh, uh, Gone with the Wind sketch. She comes downstairs and she's, I think she was naked, so she put the curtain over herself and you can see the, the rod, curtain rod. She's wearing a curtain rod and he goes, I love your dress. She goes, oh, thanks. I saw it in the window and had to have it. And the laugh goes on and on and she's, she could barely get the line out. The laugh goes on forever. Because it was one of those things where the audience could almost feel it, yeah. and it was the perfect joke for that moment. And yeah, the laughter yeah, just, yeah. it just and it's explosion that, and then they're standing there just like shaking because everyone's laughing and it's amazing. Have you guys ever uh, uh, done any projects at uh, CBS Television City? At no. Beverly and uh, Fairfax. Yeah, I mean, I've I, uh, I've never worked there. I've been there a bunch for auditions. If you ever get the chance to just kind of like wander around, yeah. and and around the sound stages. There's crazy remnants there, like from the 50s and 60s, that are just like clipboards from the Carol Burnett show. That's really? There's all kinds of pictures, too. The photographs are crazy. Well, on the they've oh, wow. so many things there, especially important comedy things. The Smothers Brothers show, All in the Family, the Jack Benny program, uh, just a million things. Where did they film I Love Lucy? A, a bunch of different places. There's yeah, well, there's one place. Uh, is it Rally? The place like right off Santa Monica, like Santa Monica kind of Wilcox. There's one stage in there because I know I was inside yeah, and they had a picture. Hollywood. Oh, Hollywood Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've been there. That, yeah, that and I've seen Lucy stuff there. That place was the sitcom factory. Yeah, and then the Desi Lou, which became Rally or Renmar, one of them. Renmar. Yeah. Renmar. Yeah, that yeah. one is on Lillian Way and Willoughby. Yeah. Or Coanga and Willoughby. Yeah, that's a cool. They built. I mean, they were so big. They. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was Desi Lou was interesting because they themselves didn't even do anything there, but they rented it out. And it became a sitcom factory. That's where they made the Andy Griffith show, Gomer mm-hmm. Pyle, Danny Thomas show, That Girl. I used to live by it and became like obsessed with it. That was my joint smoking spot was yeah. to go and smoke pot. Right, right. In the, in the aura of uh, The one the I Love Lucy stage was fascinating to me that I was on because it was tiny. And you were like, where was the audience? I think just the pilot was done there at Hollywood Center Studio. Okay. But they did everything there, like even up till recent history, like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and the Cosby show were done there. But in the 60s, it was That's like Fresh Get Prince Smart, was done at NBC. Family. Which? Fresh Prince, I think, was done at NBC. Because my friend uh, was on the, the Saved by the Bell, the new class. Uh-huh. And I would visit her, and I remember she had the sa- her dress rooms in the same hallway as Will Smith. In Burbank? In Burbank, cool. yeah. And I'm because I met Will Smith, and I was like, and he had a big screen TV in his dress room, and I was like, wow, that guy is famous. Look at the size of that television. <laughs> <All right. laughs> he had a plate, like a he had a you know a Sega. Genesis. That was before big screens were like two hundred bucks. Yeah, like you, you would have to have paid five grand. For like that I met thing. Alfonso yeah. Ribeiro and saw Will Smith, and I was like, I just met some fucking famous people today. Right. Will Smith made terrible movies in Vancouver when I lived in Vancouver. They'd always really? do all the sequels up there and bad superhero yeah. stuff. So they filmed I Robot <laughs> up there with Will Smith. And uh, he, it was so cool. He came to one of our stand-up shows. I did not know. I did my act. And then the next day, I got a phone call from my dad. He goes, Will Smith just mentioned you on the news. Whoa. Like, what? That's it was like so local cool. Vancouver news. And they're like, what do you think about Vancouver? Will Smith, he goes, oh, the women are beautiful. You got a lot of talent up there. You got uh, my character's name in my act was Shecky Gray. He goes, you got a lot of talent up here. Shecky Gray, we saw that. Wow. Like that. <laughs> That's so funny. And then uh, I was on set of iRobot doing like PA work or something. And we were shooting down below a bridge, and there was like a pedestrian bridge up above. And every shot would be ruined with a, some guy walking across the bridge would look down and go, Hey, Will, where's Carlton? <laughs> and then like 10 minutes later, I love goes, it. Hey, Will, yeah. where's Carlton? And every time Will Smith's just like, 
Oh <laughs> man, that would have life. This is what it is. That's to drive you up a fucking wall after the press tour of that movie he did with his kid a couple years ago. He did a British talk show, whatever the big one is, and and he him and his kid are performing the song from the movie, and you're like, that's great. But all of a sudden, it trans and and DJ Jazzy Jeff is behind them. It transitions into the Fresh Prince theme song, to which the the entire audience's faces start to melt with happiness. They can't even believe it. Then Carlton comes out and does the Carlton dance to the Tom Jones song. And I watched it, I don't know, 10 times. Because I was like, this is... And it, I, because I was like, they're in England. I didn't even realize the whole crowd is that by the time Carlton starts dancing, the entire audience is standing and jumping because they're just like, can you believe how epic this is? Uh, I, Fresh Prince of Bel Air belongs to part of that black comedy boom in a it's way. It's a great show. Yeah. It's a network show, a mainstream show. It's not, even then, Fox was still on the fringe in a way, even though yeah. it was successful. Yeah, they were a joke even on their own network. So to have an all black sitcom that wasn't on Fox was kind of a big deal still in 1992. Yeah. And I was in Canada. They showed it on CBC before I had any access to American networks. And so I can maybe understand the response in the UK. It sounds hokey and maybe even borderline racist to say, but that show kind of brought aspects of urban culture to white people uh-huh. that didn't otherwise have, uh, 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 who were otherwise un- not exposed to it. Fresh Prince of Bel Air told me, uh, taught me about the slave song Wade on the Water. Mm-hmm. And it taught me who Malcolm X was. There's a mm-hmm. scene where yeah. the father lectures about Malcolm X. There's a big poster on the wall. And he's telling you, you, you don't even know who Malcolm is. Yeah. Uh, you know, Uncle Phil. Yeah. I worked with Uncle Phil on an episode of Dharma and Greg. Sweet. That guy. He told me he used to do Henry VIII and the Fifth in the same day at, at Shakespeare in the Park. Wow. He had those plays Good in his Lord. head at the same time. He do them the same fucking day. You don't get that kind of fucking entertainer anymore. You know what? That's another thing that I always used to think about when I would see comedians who were like multi-talented on stage, and that you that gets a lot of flack from comics. They go like, "Oh, so and so singing," or they do impressions, or they're dancing, or they're doing you know whatever. But back in the day, that was like every entertainer did nine fucking things, and, and they did like Dean seven Martin, of them very well. Dean Martin was funny. He could sing, and then he told a story. Yeah, that all those him- Rat Pack guys. And a lot of the older comics um, did a lot of different work in entertainment just to fucking survive, which yeah. you touch on a lot, and not even explicitly. You just mentioned like, and then you know Richard Pryor got a writing gig, and then... Right. But when you think of Richard Pryor, you just think like amazing, honest, charismatic performer was, you know, this almost like poet on stage. I am. uh, But he did all the same shit anyone else did. I'm going to screen this clip on November 3rd. I'm doing my book launch at the Cine Family. And I'm going to screen a bunch. It's going to be like a clip show with lots of weird, rare kind of comedy uh, ephemera. And I have this clip of Richard Pryor from 1965-66 of the Cafe Wa singing a blues song. He's not doing comedy. He's yeah. singing this soulful blues song. And it's so strange to see him singing it. At first you think it's dubbed with somebody else's voice. He almost sounds like a woman because he's got this incredible high-pitched tenor voice. Right. But it's super soulful. It's almost heartbreaking. It's like the same kind of emotion and heartbreak that he brought to his stand-up when it was really raw. Yeah. He's brought to this this like blues song that he plays. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's amazing. I'd never heard him sing anywhere. Especially when you think of black performers back then. It's not like show business was like, hey, come on in. We're ready to help you. You had to do a lot of shit to get by. It wasn't like a welcoming time. No. But every it seems like every comedian, every every stand up had to do Yeah, they could tap dance and in the old sort of Vegas Miami Beach style there was a style of stand-up 
where you like closed with a song. Sometimes right. you opened with a song. Robert song Klein still does that. Oh yeah, yeah. He he but does that. He he does it. He does it an hour and then he closes with a number. Yeah, yeah. You know, Don Rickles sometimes too. I saw Don Rickles perform in Canada uh, at the start of the Iraq War, and uh, Canada wasn't involved, and America was obviously very yeah. involved. Don Rickles is doing this show in Canada. He does his regular act that he always does and then at the end he had a full orchestra behind him at the end he sings yankee doodle dandy <laughs> i saw him in palm springs maybe five years ago and he did his whole act and all of a sudden the, the screen behind the stage a giant flag comes up and he just starts yelling and we're gonna win this war and you're like why that's what he did in Vancouver. Yeah. i never heard anybody else who had uh, seen that that's crazy yeah. through the mic yeah. He goes, we're going to win this war. We're going to win this goddamn war. Yeah. He throws the mic on the ground and walked off. Yeah. It was, but we were like, who's going to win the war? We're not even in the war. We're in Canada. Yeah. What are you talking also, about? Also, at that yeah. point, we'd been in the war for so long, and everyone there was like, winning, it's not really what's going on at this point. It's more of a battle of truth. Like, it's, yeah. uh, we're just negotiating. Which, which war are you talking about? Yeah. Like, right, I, right, what right. Do you know, are we going to train the troops? Like it, like, it was very, it was an odd thing. You're like, oh, you've been doing this for a very long time, and that used to work in a different way. He also yeah. was still telling jokes about Japs. Yeah, he doesn't have to change. He's one of those guys though, that does not have <laughs> to adjust to the time. He goes times. to a guy in the audience. He goes, "What's your this?" The guy goes, "Armenian." You're a Jap, like because it was like he doesn't have Armenian jokes, right? He had Jap jokes. Yeah, that's funny to me. <laughs> that is actually funny. funny. <laughs> he goes, "Oh, they're all Japs." <laughs> um, do, you, do you think that uh, modern day, like, where do you see comedy going now? Having studied a hundred years of it, God, that's a heavy, heavy question. I wasn't expecting. I hope it just is That's going well. That's the kind well. of question I'm going to be asked when I do the Canadian view. I better come up with a good answer. Yeah, I know, right? Well, I see a, But I uh, wonder it too. I just see an impending uh, bust. Forget uh, the boom day. part necessarily. I mean, we touched on it a little earlier, but like, I mean, now that everyone, you can't just be a stand-up comic. For many years, you could. Now, you wouldn't necessarily become, you know, wildly successful, but you could just pick stand-up and just do that. Right. But now, if you're a stand-up, the people are immediately like, are you on Twitter? Do you have a podcast? And what else are you doing? Are you making a web series? People Do you have YouTube videos? People are marketing uh, savvy. But I think that makes sense because stand-up is a young person's game, and it always has been. So all our heroes started usually when they're 18, 19, 20, 21. Yeah. And they're pretty much established, if they're good, by the age of 30, 35 and then a new wave comes in so it makes right. sense to me that the social media thing would be really important because it's most important to people that are in that age demographic between 18 and 35 so it makes perfect sense that stand-ups would uh, market themselves that way plus twitter is like the best exercise for writing uh, jokes it's weird the structure of twitter i think makes a lot of us more prolific at writing jokes than if we just had to sit with a notebook and write jokes there's something about the confines of the 140 characters yeah and yeah. also the, the idea that you'll have an audience to read it yeah but, right yeah uh, i don't know the one thing that i think is weird is that uh, comedians are now often good looking which <laughs> never used to be the the case there's a lot of you can go to any stage in los angeles and you'll find dudes and girls that kind of look like uh, models or look like s s fairly well-scrubbed uh, uh, actors. Even when I started in 98, everybody was still fat and gross. Right. Um, and now it's just the template. There's one fat, gross guy, and then everybody else is good-looking. It's yeah. a weird phenomenon. But I guess maybe people are just a little bit savvier in how to market themselves because in this country especially, you don't need talent to succeed in show business. I agree. You can be like an Ann Coulter, and she's just a marketer. And people think she's an idiot because she says terrible things, 
And I guess she is an idiot, but she's a brilliant marketer. She knows that the viler the statement, the more attention you'll get. And if you don't let your conscience get in the way, you can make uh-huh. an enormous amount of money. And that's very common in America. You know, if stand-up fails either of you, you just need to start expressing some real extreme racist right-wing views. <laughs> right. Hit radio show syndicated yeah. across the country. Right, right. Um, and I think stand-ups kind of are savvier as marketers now, too. They know that... Uh, Twitter is hypothetically an avenue to something good. It is another stage. It is more stage time where people are going to see you. Sometimes people who are your heroes will see you and retweet you and, and bring in a new uh, audience. That being said, there's still a million podcasts nobody is listening to and a million oh, yeah. comedy YouTube videos that nobody's watching. But uh, uh, I do see a boo- uh, 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 this boom busting uh-huh. sometime soon. Hopefully, uh, long after my book has sold. I know, yeah. <laughs> and it's third pressing. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but I, that, that really is, is, is the takeaway. When I look at my book, it's like things happen in cycles. Vaudeville was a thing that was never going to ever end. Yeah. And then it crashed along with the stock market. Yeah. It was replaced by radio, which was far cheaper, and you can listen to it at home. Everybody thought radio would last forever. And then TV came in. It was a gimmick. It was a passing fad the way that some people might think that podcasts are a passing fad, you know. But then TV sustained itself. But then TV uh, uh, gave way to uh, a resurgence of of live comedy, you know, in the 70s. And nobody could have foreseen the idea of all these comedy clubs. It was a foreign concept that was really impossible to predict. So our next platform is impossible to predict, just like the Internet is not something that anybody who was foreseeing the future in the 60s really could really properly predict. You know, they might come up with similar concepts. We'll be able to shop from home, but nobody yeah. really knew what that meant. Yeah, how? <laughs> it was hard to describe. Like, there's a commercial right now with Katie Couric and, and right. Gumbel, and they go, and it's them. They show a clip from them in the 90s going, what's the internet? Can you explain it yeah. to their producer? They're uh, like, what's the that, yeah. circle around the A? It's like, like no, it's a, it's a place. What do you mean? No, you go to it. Where? The superhighway. Yeah, you're like, it's an information. Where does it exist? In a comp- I don't get it. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. it was it until you saw it. That's yeah. the thing. It's, I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I still remember uh, not having a computer or a phone with a computer. And oh, yeah. And to go to the convenience store and put in a dollar so I could uh, check my email for 15 minutes, you know? Yeah. And that seems so fucking archaic Crazy, and foreign yeah. to me. And then I was like, well, this like, I was doing stand-up at the time. It was like 2000 and Yeah, it was not that long ago. Yeah. I think I watched Hurricane Katrina, the Kanye clip on a dollar computer. Right, right. <laughs> it's interesting. And now, I mean, I wish, do you have a copy of the book on you? I personally do not have a copy Damn of myself it. yet. You I have one. Copy. Can I borrow it? No. Okay. <laughs> well, I can't buy it. I, I want to buy no, it. I know. I'll buy it, obviously. Um. So the one I have is like, is it going to change by the time the... Yes. Yeah. There's some corrections in the new version. There's photos in the new version. Oh, wow. Uh, so I haven't seen the photo spread yet. The blurbs... Oh, so I gotta, I'm going to buy it. I don't think all the blurbs are on that version that you have. Uh, I got great blurbs for the book. I'm so, I, I asked five people for blurbs and I got five blurbs without Sweet. hesitation. I got awesome. one from Mark Marin, mm-hmm. Leonard Moulton, John Hodgman, Norm, Norm MacDonald, and Mel Brooks. Those are hot. amazing yeah, blurbs. Those are hot blurbs, dude. Five? But I mean, hot. it's yeah. it's not surprising either. The book is really fucking good, dude. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It was like, 
I didn't want it to end. I was like, oh. this is so fun to be reading about all this oh, stuff. Because like I, I've always lo- like since I was a fucking kid, I was like, I want to know everything about comedy, especially since I've been doing it literally since I was like a, an adult, like 18 years old. So I've always, every book about comedy that's come out, I'm like, hand yeah. it over. Unless it was a couple you mentioned earlier, I just had never heard well, of. I mean, I was always the same way as you. I wanted to know the whole story. But yeah. I always found it frustrating. You wanted to ask about uh, Cary Grant and LSD. And I used to read, I read for some reason, I read four different books about Cary Grant before the age of 30. I wasn't even a mm-hmm. Cary Grant fan. But one <laughs> I picked up like as a paperback at a garage sale and I read it. And another one, I, I think I got them all in thrift stores. And two of the four books mentioned in one sentence with no elaboration in 1958, Cary Grant went to a psychiatrist and did LSD experiments. In 1959, when he was in the movie, and you're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you're like, hold wait, the fuck wait, on. wait, 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 wait. <laughs> one sentence. And then you go to yeah. the other book, one sentence, and the other two books, no yeah. sentences. And I'm like, huge puzzle pieces yeah. missing here. First right. of all, it was experiments, plural. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if so, Cary Grant did LSD twice, that's worth its own book. Yeah, so I became extremely curious. So this comedy history book should answer most of those kind of questions. If you've ever read a book about comedy where there's this thing that made you go, wait a second. Because there, there is a book that says, Albert Brooks's dad died after he performed. End of story. Yeah. And you're like, that's not the end of the story. That's not even the beginning of the story. There's yeah. something fascinating there. Milton Berle had the biggest dick in show business and would show it to people. Well, wait, what? Yeah. what tell me more about yeah. this. Because all I hear is the same joke about that. But I yeah. think there's got to be more. Where does that come from? Yeah. How do people know that Milton Berle... You want to know that stuff. It reminds me when I first got the comedy store and you'd clown some old timer and someone would pull you aside and go, no, no, no. You don't understand. That guy was the shit. Yeah. Was, during this time, this guy was one of these guys and they started this thing and that's the reason this guy came around. And like, yeah, he may not have made it, but that guy's not a joke. Yeah. Like, yeah, you don't, don't shit on that dude. You don't know. You weren't there. Yeah, that's always interesting. It is also sort of like... Well, I worked for a lady. Her name was Claudia Lano, and her her stepdad yeah, is Mark Lano. Sure, yeah. And she, we were. It was the year that Comedy Central list of greatest comedians of all time came out, and I was kind of grousing about part of it. She goes, "Well, the thing is, Kevin, you don't know what you're talking about." And she goes, "And I don't mean that in a <laughs> right. mean way." She goes, "But you weren't there. You're just uninformed." She goes, <laughs> yeah. "I was there," and then she goes, "A lot of the '90s guys get put in the wrong place because there was it was not during the boom." And she goes, "You don't understand. The funniest guy at the Improv when I was there for almost five years was was Dana Gould." She goes, everyone came in the room to watch Dana Gould. He was funnier than fucking everybody. But then he went and he became such a successful writer. People don't necessarily know how good of a stand-up he was during that time. That special he he put out, the only one, I think, for years, was so fucking good. Dana Dana is still hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah. The thing is, I talk about this in the book, is that age is really cruel to comedians. To all artists, but especially comedians, because... What was funny in 1978 is not the same as what's funny in 1998 or 2008 or 2015. It changes, and you speak to the generation in the audience. And you being from a certain generation, generally speaking, can only relate to an audience of that generation. Mm -hmm. That's why when you go and see Robert Klein, the people in the audience are as old as Robert Klein. And then the people who are young comedians that are curious about the legend of Robert Klein go... And they're kind of underwhelmed. And a lot of it is because Robert Klein influenced everybody who we do know, like Jerry Seinfeld yeah. and people like that. Yeah. And so it loses all its edge because yeah, it's you're just, like, oh, this is just airline material. Oh, wait, he invented airline material? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but age is very cruel. And so I talk about in the book how this guy was hilarious then. But it's, it's irrelevant for us to try and 
understand that or see that you can't really watch tv shows from the 50s that were hilarious very few hilarious i mean i've, I've had the exception of i love lucy okay right. no yeah but there's very i mean when i first Even that you have to look at through a prism and it can be very entertaining but mm-hmm. you have to look at it through the prism of the era and the generation and the style i had that problem when i first watched prior i was like some of these things weren't landing on me and you'd hear a huge laugh and you're like i don't get but it's or you go i've seen a lot of comics do that but yeah. you go, of course. They took this guy was so influential. Old like SNL is the biggest problem with yeah. me because it's and so meet, it was so topical. You're like, I don't get this at all. And you meet these crusty old people who are like, SNL hasn't been funny since Chevy Chase left. And then you watch like a Chevy Chase season, and you're like, you're like, why what? is this sketch thirty minutes? Yeah, like, yeah. Right, how right, much right. cocaine? Bee costumes. They're yeah. in, they're dressed as bees. This was considered right. the edgiest thing. Yeah. For my generation, it's SNL. 88 to 92, Mike Myers, Chris Farley, Rob Schneider, Adam Sandler, Chris Rock. This is the funniest uh, assemblage yeah. ever with a writing mm-hmm. uh, staff that includes like uh, Robert Smigel and Bob Odenkirk and, and Conan O'Brien. It's, uh, it's remarkable. And so I can't relate to that 70s thing. But, yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be kids who are going to find all those people I just listed completely on. Yeah, they probably watch Dana Carvey. They're like, I don't get it. You're like, shut your mouth. And that's not even like, I mean, largely the point is to go back and like sit there and like, you know, hold your side laughing. It's to sit there and especially if you're someone who's going to be interested in like reading your book and wanting to know the history, it's about like understanding what they did back then exactly. and how it like would translate now, which it really wouldn't because, you know, it's the material so old. But, but if you put yourself back there, you, you know what I did when I was reading your book was like I would sit there and read these sections on like Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce and while I was, I'm like, oh, okay, he's going to talk about Mort Saul for a while. I'd put on a Mort Saul, I'd stop the book, right, right, right. put on the record, and be like, that's why this was important back then. Because yeah. before, I'd put on the Mort Saul record, and I'd go, well, it's interesting how I was able to kind of talk for so long without getting a laugh. And like, I get what he was doing, and it was way different for the time. But when I listen to it now, having read sections on his life and where he was performing and how difficult it was, it, like, it, you respect the guys even more. You're not laughing any harder. Yeah. But you're like, how the fuck did they get away with it? Context, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I always say that history is context. Yeah, totally. it is. Like the, the word really is like a, a synonym for the other. Uh, history mm. is context. If you have history, then you have understanding. And the whole cliche of you, you got to know history or you're doomed to repeat yourself, mm-hmm. it's true. Like uh, uh, I was into like uh, political history when I was uh, in my early 20s especially. So when the Iraq war happened, it was like reading a book I had just read about the Vietnam War mm-hmm. or the Panama invasion, all these, or the Gulf of Tolkien, all these like fabricated pretenses to invade a country uh, were like uh, uh, bold in my mind. And so I'd watch these debates on TV and I was like, all oh, these people are insane. Mm-hmm. But it's because they don't have context or they don't want context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? But history is context and it will give you an appreciation and an understanding for things. Uh, it may not make you laugh uh, harder, but suddenly you understand, oh, Louis C.K. said his hero is George Carlin, and George Carlin said his hero was Lenny Bruce. Hence, Lenny Bruce equals Louis C.K. Like, it's hard to make that jump if you're a Louis C.K. fan, especially a young person. You put on a Lenny Bruce record, you're not going to laugh at the Lenny Bruce record. But if you have that through line, that understanding of how one person influences the other, how yeah. one person evolves into the other, then suddenly it all makes sense. You know? Yeah, like, especially modern day. Like if you look at modern day Louis C.K., he's more like 
Lenny Bruce and really any of the others as far as like you're watching a guy on stage. You're not watching a comic do an act. He's also addressing whatever the elephant in the room is. So like mm-hmm. when he did uh, Jimmy uh, Fallon the other day, he was talking about how uh, he had to do uh, a show, not with the president, but somebody important, I forget who, and he shit his pants right before he went on stage, but they said you got to be on stage in a minute, so <sighs> he just pretended that nothing happened and tried to dry himself off while he was standing there, mm-hmm. and then they made him wait in the wings for 45 minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but like that, I don't know whether that's true or not, but if it is true, like that level of honesty is akin to like a Lenny Bruce, where you're actually yeah. going to address, no matter how humiliating, embarrassing, controversial, you're going to address it and make it funny. Yeah. And it's the weird thing is that uh, you don't know what people are going to relate to until you actually say it out loud. You're taking a huge risk because you could be like a, a foreign alien by saying this thing out loud, like you shit your pants and, and this happens. But then everybody's laughing because as it turns out, they can all relate to it. They would just yeah. never ever say it out loud. Yeah, on some one level or another. But, um, but yeah, he's, kinda, he's taken that and made it, applied it to his personal life. Like the vulnerabilities, and as where Carlin was more like social commentary, politics. George George Carlin had a strange evolution where he changed his act for every decade. So in the '60s, he was a coffee house, clean cut comic who was yeah. very good. He did impressions. Then in the '70s, he became the voice, the spokesperson for the hippie generation. It was a counterculture guy. Right. In the '80s, he was kind of fucked up from so much cocaine. He kind of turned into a very mediocre comedy boom com- comedian with bits like, you ever open the fridge and there's an empty plate in there? Why is there an, op- an empty yeah. plate? You know, it's not really... Why do you park on the uh, driveway and drive on a parkway? Yeah. Right, right, right. And then in the 90s, he changed again. He became angrier, the cranky old man. And Carlin was very strategic. He said that in the 90s, when he was dressing all in black and ranting and did all those great HBO specials, that he was doing that because he saw the tides of comedy changing and it was becoming harder to compete with the Andrew Dice Clay's and the Sam Kinnison's that he had to get louder and angrier in order to stay right. relevant. Which huh. I think is kind of, I don't know if it's true or not, but I think it's very astute. And I think he did the same thing in the late 60s when he saw, look at all these hippies, this counterculture. There's no comedian speaking for them. Right. And he ended up filling that void and became a colossal star because of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's all context. Well, I'm excited to read it now. This has been a long, exhausting podcast. Reading. This is one of our longer ones. Two hours, 40 minutes. That's a lot. Jesus. Yeah. Cut it down. Send it to my editor. (laughs) No way. This is going up as is. This is great. Uh, We should end it, though, because I'm sure you have other things to do, and you just said you're exhausted. Um, But I mean. No, it's dude. It's it's fascinating to me. But I mean, the more we go on, we're just going to keep giving away yeah. parts of the book, which oh, people. I, don't care. I mean, the book. Uh, you know, there the, a lot of these are stories that I've been telling long before I wrote mm-hmm. the book. You know, and people would be uh, intrigued. You know, there's yeah. there's a lot in there. I'll oh, there is. Yeah. There really is. It's one of those ones where you reread because you're just like, wait, I forgot about that guy's name in this story because there's so there's just so much. Yeah, a guy, a guy sent me an email yesterday. Uh, a few people have advanced copies. There's like 50 advanced copies floating around town, you know. And like I said, Steve Martin has a copy. Another copy. Me and Steve Martin have something in common, yes, finally. You do. You do. <laughs> a couple wild and crazy guys. <laughs> this guy, Scott Alexander, who wrote the movie uh, Ed Wood and The People vs. Larry Flint and yeah. Man on the Moon, he has a copy of the book. And he sent me this email yesterday saying, listing the three things that he found most fascinating so far in the book. And it was just interesting. Everybody's taking away a different thing because there's so many stories in there. Yeah. So his big fact that he couldn't believe was the movie Cat Baloo, which is a Jane Fonda movie from the 60s, a Western with Lee Marvin. At one point, they were experimenting uh, 
because television was using laugh tracks in all its comedies. Yeah. Columbia Pictures decided they would send out a movie with a laugh track to theaters. Whoa. And they did that with Cat Baloo. Yeah. So it was, it was a failed experiment. It's insane. Had considered it. Let's put out all our comedy movies with a laugh track. It was like those seats that had buzzers and shit like that, like those weird gimmicks. Oh, yeah. William Castle. Yeah. Tingler. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Smellometers. <laughs> Doesn't the laugh track, though, in TV strike you as bizarre that it ever occurred because how absurd does it sound to suggest that we put them in a it movie? sounds odd but it's then like, absurd, yeah. but it's, then yet in tv it should but then be I, you know what absurd. show i actually liked the way they did it is on uh, how i met your mother where there was no studio audience the, the writers were like this is where we think the joke is we're putting this laugh here and we don't give a shit they're just like we're putting the laugh really? here there's no audience they shot it they shot they didn't shoot like a normal show they shot eight hours a day on a sitcom stage which shows this two and a half minutes no how i met your mother oh, how i met your and so they just put the laugh where they thought it should be at the joke. I didn't know that. Yeah. So they just basically like, Wait, this so is that our- show's laugh tracked? Yeah. I never noticed that. They were like, this is our pace. At the start, like, uh, How I Met Your Mother is not taken nope. in front of a laugh studio. They just, it starts up and there's laughs in it. And they basically were like, this is our timing. Here's where the my joke f- is. Here's my the favorite is. live studio audience show was Married with Children. Oh, because yeah. there'd be whistling, people yeah. would yell Kelly yeah, yeah, yeah. Bundy. Yeah, Christina yeah. Applegate walks it was, in. It was the most. It was the funniest oh God, thing in the world. Yeah, it added that. a level of comedy How to the fun show. Would it have been to go to those tapings? Oh, what oh, amazing! Yeah. What I always wanted to see was because you know they would reuse laugh tracks. Yeah. Was take the Married with Children studio audience and then just apply it to another show. Frasier. where at random times people would go Kelly, yeah. and you'd be like, "What?" It's amazing yeah. how just in a short period of time uh, TV comedy has evolved because Seinfeld reruns look so dated and sound oh, yeah, so yeah. dated. No matter how funny they are, the laugh track sounds so contrived. Yeah, I, and the yeah. theme music sounds. Also, they're so, so dated. much slower. They're just less words numerically in shows back then than there are now. There's more words. Really? Yeah. The way, I mean, single camera, because single camera didn't have a laugh track, all of a sudden those scripts were longer. And so that almost style of writing now, it, the Gilmore Girls had the record. They averaged like, it was like something like 40% more words per episode. Really? Yeah, it was something. Cause there was a 2020 about it. And they just fucking pack all these damn words in it. And then like, yeah. you see that with girls too, there's a shit ton of words. Because single, single cameras just increase the number, the count. I had no idea. Yeah, there's yeah. less pausing. Yeah, in a because con- in a real conversation, you're not pausing every ten seconds. And there's more right. jokes in it. It would, what are what are sitcoms now? The ones that are still on, they try to put way more jokes in them than like than they used. Like a Frasier didn't have as many technical punchlines. Right. Whereas now they're just like every, that's why every character is the same. Is everyone's witty. Right. Parks, whereas like an yeah, old like Parks, friends the Parks and Rec style. Whereas yeah, everyone for some yeah. reason is smart and witty yet an idiot. But like right. like an old, you know that's why I always liked about Friends is Joey was always dumb. He was never accidentally acerbic. He was dumb all the time. His jokes came from being dumb. Key to comedy: a dumb guy, a dumb fat guy. guy. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that when I watch sitcoms now, that's what I don't enjoy is everyone's super fast and witty. It's like, nah, not really. Mm-hmm. I haven't watched a sitcom in a very long time. The best criticism ever was Sarah Silverman said, when was the last time you stood up in your own home? Like, do you ever oh, stand... Oh, the way that, yeah. When do you ever stand around talking in your own home? Yeah. Like, no one fucking does that, that shit. That is a good observation. <laughs> yeah, like, we just... Or, or a staircase that is in your living room to go upstairs. Yeah, and also, like, how, <laughs> how often do, like, your, fr- your three friends come over 
every day. Yeah. <laughs> At all hours. At the all doors hours. never locked. And they have a key. Yeah. Who doesn't lock their door post 1960? Yeah. <laughs> and they always make adults have roommates, even though it's like you both have like jobs that pay 80 grand a year. And there aren't that many architects in real life than there are on 80s yeah. and 90s TV. Why would you have a roommate? <laughs> you see, you guys got it easy. I'm the historian. I'm complaining about. Who has a family of monsters? <laughs> who has a genie? As right, a right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> Whose cousin is a Martian? I mean, yeah. these yeah. days, really. right? They let Flipper fight crime in the eighties. It was a dolphin that fought crime. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank Everyone, so much, go. Man. Everybody, go out and buy this book. Um, in bookstores on Amazon. On Amazon. Is it going to be uh, available on Kindle? or It's going to be available on Kindle, uh, audiobook, regular okay. book. It's uh, All on the same day? It just it's gonna got be selected staggered. as the Indie Bookstore Book of December, so it's going to be in every one of your independent bookstores in America cool. in December. So if you live in L.A., by the way, go to Skylight Books on Vermont. That's the Skylight coolest one in the on area. Vermont is uh, sponsoring uh, all my L.A. events. Sweet. I'm glad uh, I picked that place to tell people to go. Stores too. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I'm very excited. I get to go on a cool tour. I get to do, go to Harvard for the first time. That's wow. Exciting. And I just got an email this morning. I've been invited to it. Get this. Get this. Nobody will believe this after listening to this bullshit <laughs> for three hours. I got invited this morning to address the annual convention of Mensa. Whoa. And talk about my book. Holy shit. Tell those nerds they can suck it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Dude, congratulations. Yeah, well done, sir. This is a great book. I'm glad you wrote it. Every comic should read it. Every list, everyone who's a fan of comedy, read it and learn. Thank you again. Thanks, guys. All right.